Welcome to the audio description tour of the White House Visitor Center. One and one quarter minutes. You may choose from four hours of recorded descriptions of major features. Although this audio description tour will provide general navigation, it is not a detailed mobility guide. Please listen to the three segments of introductory information, which you'll be able to choose from the audio menu at the end of this segment. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through the menu options, where each item will be identified by an announcement. Press the circular button in the center to select and hear the description of the last item announced. When it ends, you will return to the menu, where you may select another item. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. When you are ready to leave the choices of a particular audio menu, simply move to another area of the Visitor Center where audio description will begin automatically. Throughout the Visitor Center, the diamond button will return you to this introductory information. Each segment will end with this tone. The audio description device operation, one and three quarter minutes. Hold the device so that the neck cord is on your left and the tactile buttons are on your right. Place the cord around your neck or wrist to ensure that the device will not slip from your hands. Hold the device at chest height. On the right side, you will find a column of tactile buttons. There are two triangular buttons at the top of the row. Beneath these are four crescent-shaped buttons surrounding a circular button. Then there is a square button and finally a diamond-shaped button. The triangular buttons control volume. At some locations, the crescent buttons and circular button are used to select items from an audio menu. The square button is the pause and resume play button, which may be especially helpful if you wish to pause and resume the description while you explore a tactile display. The sensors that receive signals within the visitor center are located on both long sides of the device. Do not block the edge of the device that is facing up. Descriptions or audio menu titles will play automatically when you move into range of a display. You may explore displays in any order you wish. To operate the device, merely move through the visitor center, holding this device with the screen facing you, the buttons to the right, and the long edge facing up. If you have questions about this device or the audio description tour, please ask at the information desk. Learn to operate the audio description device. Audio description orientation, four minutes. With your back to the information desk, to the right, behind the displays, are three doorways leading to a vestibule with restrooms. The women's room to the left, the men's room to the right, and the drinking fountains to the right of the men's room. With your back to the information desk, across the room to the left is the curved entrance and exit ramp, which returns to the street. Behind you, at the center of the right end of Baldridge Hall, the word exit is on the wall above a bronze and glass door. To the left, behind you, is the bookstore. The visitor center is in Baldridge Hall on the first floor of the north side of the seven-story Greystone Herbert C. Hoover Department of Commerce building. Baldridge Hall is a single rectangular room 220 feet long by 70 feet wide by 24 feet high. The walls are large blocks of light brown stone. Running the length of the hall on both sides is a six-foot-wide arcade, or passageway, supported by 12 evenly spaced rectangular columns. 
The columns support repeating pale green arches decorated with intricate repeating weave-like designs in grayish-green, reddish-brown, and pale-brown. Above the main portion of the room is a molded plaster ceiling decorated in repeating red, blue, and gold-colored patterns of octagons, circles, and rectangles. Evenly spaced on both sides of the ceiling are bronze chandeliers, each containing 24 round white light bulbs. Most of the floor is covered with light brown carpet. The information desk is a white, slightly curved counter, 4 feet high and 16 inches wide. Standing with your back to the information desk, the displays extend in front of you 120 feet where they end with a partition. Behind the partition, a four-row widescreen theater shows the film The White House Reflections from Within every 20 minutes. With your back to the information desk, in front of you are two models of the White House. To the right is a 6-foot-long tactile model, and to the left is a 16-foot-long model. On a shelf around the larger model, interactive computer monitors offer a timeline history and detailed images of the interior and exterior of the White House from its beginnings to the present. Beyond the models, the display area is filled with a series of freestanding white display cases. The long display area is divided into six parallel lanes. As you move through the visitor center, displays are grouped under the themes of home, office, museum, stage, and park. Three short videos play continuously within the exhibits. Benches are in front of two of the video monitors and at various locations at the sides of the display area. To understand the layout of the visitor center, the White House's location in President's Park, and the exterior of the White House, you may wish to explore three specific displays before you visit the rest of the exhibit. As you reach each of these display areas, you will hear an audio menu from which you may choose to hear the description of the specific display. Start with the tactile map of Baldridge Hall. Second, go to the tactile map of President's Park, which encompasses Lafayette Park, the White House, and the Ellipse. After the President's Park map, Third, go to the six-foot tactile model of the White House exterior. If you wish to visit these three orientation exhibits first, you'll be able to follow directions after the description of the first exhibit to the second, and after the description of the second to the third. To go to the Baldridge Hall map, face the right end of the information desk and move slightly to the right. Then move forward to locate the four-foot by one-and-one-half-foot display table. Listen to the White House Visitor Center Audio Description Orientation. Baldridge Hall Introduction Here there are two displays, the tabletop Baldridge Hall tactile map, and behind this, the Baldridge Hall display panel. To follow the earlier suggestion to understand the White House's location in President's Park, continue to listen at the end of the Baldridge Hall tactile map description for directions to go to the tactile map of President's Park which encompasses the White House, Lafayette Park, and the Ellipse. To make another choice, move to any other display where audio description will begin automatically. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The Tactile Baldridge Hall Map, 
three and one half minutes. If you would like to pause in order to explore the map of the rectangular exhibit space before starting the description, press the square button now. Press it again when you're ready to hear the description. The legend is at the left and the map at the right. Against an ivory-colored background, dark brown printed text, raised numbers, and raised outlines and shapes define the legend and the map. At the left, the legend is labeled with raised numbers, printed text, and braille. In numerical order, the areas on the legend are 1. Information Desk 2. Bookstore 3. Temporary Exhibits Area 4. Permanent Exhibits Area 5. Theater and 6. Restrooms To the right of the legend is the map with corresponding raised and braille numbers. At the lower right corner, the compass rose indicates that the bottom of the map is north. The rectangular Baldridge Hall runs from left to right or east to west. Near the bottom and top of the map are horizontal rows of 12 small squares that represent columns. At the bottom center of the map are the three front doors and the entrance and exit ramp, which curves to the right. Follow the ramp to the curved front of the information desk identified as number one. Slightly lower and to the right is a raised star, which marks you are here, in front of a narrow rectangle that represents the Baldridge Hall display panel and this map. Just below the star, behind you as you face this map, is number two, the bookstore, in the map's lower right corner. Above the bookstore is number three, labeled as the temporary exhibits area, in the map's upper right corner. Moving to the left, from in front of the information desk, to the far left or east wall of Baldridge Hall, are the permanent exhibits. The first exhibit is indicated by a large rectangular shape which represents a platform with a 16-foot White House model surrounded by interactive computer monitors and displays. To the left, near the center of the map, the number 4 is surrounded by six narrow rectangles which represent some of the displays in the themed exhibit area. At the far left, or east end of the exhibit space, is the theater, designated as number 5. At the top center of the map, the wall is broken with three doorways to the restrooms, number 6. To follow the earlier suggestion to understand the location of the White House in President's Park, continue to listen for directions to go to the tactile map of President's Park. To make another choice, you may move to any other exhibit where audio description will begin automatically. To go to the tactile map of President's Park, while facing the map of Baldridge Hall, turn to the left and go approximately 30 feet to the shelf surrounding the 16-foot model. With the platform with the 16-foot White House model on your right, move forward until you reach the 3-foot square tabletop tactile map of President's Park to the left in front of the changing landscape display case. Along the way, you will hear an announcement of the House of the Nation exhibit description, but you may continue past this to the President's Park map. The Tactile Baldridge Hall map, on a four-foot wide and one-and-one-half-foot deep tabletop below the Baldridge Hall wall panel. The Baldridge Hall display panel, one and three-quarters minutes. Above the tabletop tactile map, this panel is divided into three sections, all set against a pale tan and white rendering of the room's ceiling. The left section reads, From Patent Room to Visitor Center, 
and contains photos of the Department of Commerce building under construction in 1930 and the building as it appears now. In 1932, with more than 3,000 rooms, it was the largest federal building in the country. You are standing in Baldrige Hall, home of the White House Visitor Center. Located on the north end of the Department of Commerce headquarters, this room is named for Malcolm Baldrige, who served as Secretary of Commerce from 1981 to 1985. When the new Department of Commerce building opened in 1932, this space originally served as the patent search room. Baldrige Hall's rich historic legacy, stately architectural features, and proximity to the White House made it an ideal location for the White House Visitor Center, which opened in 1995. The center section quotes President Abraham Lincoln. The patent system added the fuel of interest to the fire of genius. It also shows Lincoln's unsuccessful patent application of an invention to make boats more buoyant. The section contains historic photos of the room and describes its original use. Inventors and attorneys filled the desks lining the room to explore existing patents and make sure their ideas were truly original. Stacks flanking the hall stored more than three million patents, the legacy of a few famous and many little-known inventors. The right section acknowledges the National Park Service's partnership with the White House Historical Association and the financial support of David M. Rubenstein. Listen to the description of the Baldrige Hall display panel. On the wall above the tabletop, Baldrige Hall tactile map. The Welcome to the White House Visitor Center introduction. Two minutes. In this area of the Visitor Center, there are six description segments. The first, in the open space between the Welcome to the White House Visitor Center display panel and the 16-foot-long model of the White House, covers the tabletop tactile model of the White House. The second is the Welcome to the White House Visitor Center display panel, which you face when your back is to the six-foot-long south front of the tactile White House model. The third is an overview of the south front of the 16-foot model of the White House. The fourth is the shelf of displays and interactive computer monitors surrounding the 16-foot model. The fifth is the pull-out drawer of tactile maps under each of the eight interactive computer monitors that surround the 16-foot model. The sixth and last is a segment to learn how to operate the interactive computer monitors with audio description. When you have listened to as many of the descriptions in this area as you wish, the next nearby display case, President's Park, is ahead of you if your back is to the east front of the six-foot tactile White House model. Audio description will begin automatically when you reach that area. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The White House Tactile Model The 2.5-foot by 6-foot tabletop model in the open space between the 16-foot model of the White House and the Welcome to the White House Visitor Center display panel. Its description begins when you are on the 6-foot-long north front of the model with your back to the 16-foot model. The White House Tactile Model, Part 1, 3 and one half minutes. Before you begin exploring this model, you may wish to go behind you to the center of the shelf that surrounds the 16-foot model. 
There you will find a simple 20-inch by 7-inch tactile silhouette that shows a three-dimensional footprint of the present-day White House. At the center is the south front of the executive residence with its curved south portico. To the left, the west terrace and west wing, and to the right, the east terrace and east wing. If you would like to go to this small model for a bird's-eye view of the White House, press the square button to pause this description, and then press it again to resume the description when you return to the six-foot tactile model. This all-white six-foot tactile model is at a scale of one inch equals 10 feet, or one foot equals 120 feet. The immediate grounds surrounding the White House are indicated by a rough texture, while walks are shown by narrow, smooth surfaces, and driveways are designated with wide, smooth surfaces. To orient yourself, start at the center of the peaked roof above the columns of the north portico. Starting at the center of the north front, the White House includes the rectangular, four-floor executive residence, 170 feet wide from east to west, and 85 feet deep from north to south. Its north portico projects 40 feet. To the left or east of the executive residence, attached at the ground floor, are the one-story east terrace and the two-story east wing. To the right or the west of the executive residence are the one-story L-shaped west terrace and the three-story west wing. Altogether, the White House occupies 660 feet east to west and 170 feet north to south. Returning to the center of the north front of the executive residence, the rectangular north portico, which extends 40 feet, includes a covered entrance through which a vehicle could pass. It has a triangular pediment and a gable roof, supported by 12 columns two stories high. Under the portico, steps lead to a broad landing in front of and to the sides of the central double door. The floors of the residence are the ground floor, the first, second, and third floors. At either side of the north portico, the ground floor has three square windows. On the first floor are ten tall rectangular windows set within thick frames. On the second floor are eleven identical windows set within thick stone frames. Above these windows, and wrapping around the entire structure, a line of cornice molding. Above the cornice, the wall is topped by a balustrade, or stone railing, divided into sections. The wall and balustrade wrap around the third floor and its roof that is angled at the sides and flat on top. The third floor has nine rectangular windows. Evenly spaced around the roof are twelve chimneys. Now move to the left, around the corner, to face the east end of the model. When you are ready to hear the description from that vantage point, press the circular button. If instead you wish to leave the White House tactile model description and choose to hear other descriptions in this area, press any of the crescent buttons. The East Front of the White House Tactile Model, Part 2, 2 and 3 quarters minutes. On its east front, the east wing has a narrow covered one-story entrance with columns through which a vehicle could pass. The building is the oblong two-story east wing with its roof angled at the sides and flat on top. Connecting the east wing to the executive residence is the one-story east terrace. Now move to the left around the corner to the next side to start at the east end of the south front of the White House. Press the square button to pause this description 
and then press it again to resume the description after you have moved. Beginning at the right end of the model is the oblong two-story east wing, which is attached to the one-story east terrace that, moving toward the left or west, joins the east side of the executive residence. Once you reach the executive residence at the center of the model, it has windows similar to the north front. However, at the center of the south front is the semicircular south portico, which projects 25 feet and extends from the ground floor to its roof above the second floor. On the ground floor of the portico are three arched openings. Curved double staircases lead from the ground to the bowed first floor porch. Six columns extend from the first floor porch to a line of cornice molding at the top of the second floor. Both the double staircases and the second floor Truman balcony have wrought iron railings that are not on this model. Above the second floor windows and wrapping around the entire structure, including the curved south portico, is a line of cornice molding. Above the cornice is an extension of the south wall topped by a balustrade or stone railing divided into sections. At the center of the third floor, on the octagonal solarium that extends over most of the south portico's roof, are rectangular windows around three sides and one large square window facing south. The residence's roof, which is angled at the sides and flat on top, has 12 evenly spaced chimneys. Now move to the left end of this same side of the model. When you are ready to hear the description from that vantage point, press the circular button. If instead you wish to leave the White House tactile model description and choose to hear other descriptions in this area, press any of the crescent buttons. The West Wing of the White House Tactile Model, Part 3, 1 and 3 quarters minutes. On the south front of the White House, extending to the left of the executive residence, is the long, narrow, L-shaped, one-story West Terrace, which consists of a long, open colonnade with nine evenly spaced columns and 11 windows at the top along the south wall. The L's open colonnade has another 11 columns. To the left of the West Terrace is the domed roof of the Oval Office, which is considered part of the West Wing. Touching the slightly raised roof here provides the best sense of the office's oval shape. Reaching down its curved south wall leads to the three tall rectangular windows that appear behind the President when photographed sitting at the desk. Continuing to the left of the Oval Office is the oblong portion of the West Wing with only two of its three floors, the first and second floors, above ground on its south side. The west wing roof is angled at the sides and flat on top. Now move around the tabletop to the left to its next side, the west front of the White House. Press the square button to pause this description, and then press it again to resume the description after you have moved. At the west front, the three floors of the west wing are above ground, Continue moving to the left, back to the north front of the White House, and stop at the west end of the west wing. On the north front, only two floors are above ground, and there is a narrow covered entrance with four columns through which a vehicle could pass. The Welcome to the White House Visitor Center Display Panel, 2 and 1 quarter minutes. Between two stone columns is this 10 and 1 half foot wide, by eight-foot-high panel with the words, Welcome to the White House Visitor Center. 
The panel is divided into three sections. The left section contains text above a gray drawing of the White House North Front. The second and third panels contain photos depicting the White House's multiple functions as home, office, museum, stage, and park. The White House has stood as a symbol of the United States for more than 200 years. As the President's office, it serves as a cornerstone of America's national government. As a home, it has been the setting for the everyday joys and sorrows of the families who have lived there. A living museum, it holds priceless historical artifacts and some of the finest examples of American craftsmanship and artistry. All of the presidents since John Adams, 1797 to 1801, have called it home, yet the building belongs to the American people, an enduring national icon reflecting the country's strength, stability, and democratic values. Five color photos in two rows, two above and three below, cover the center and right sections of the display. At the upper left, representing the White House as a home, Caroline and John F. Kennedy Jr. are shown having a picnic on the South Lawn in 1963. The White House as an office shows President George W. Bush holding a meeting in the Oval Office in 2001. As a museum, the Green Room, a sitting room with historic furnishings, is pictured. As a stage, President Ronald Reagan is shown holding his final press conference in the East Room in 1988. And as a park, the White House near the center of President's Park is shown in an aerial view from the north. The Welcome to the White House Visitor Center display panel, which you face when your back is to the south front of the six-foot-long tactile White House model. The south front of the 16-foot White House model two and one quarter minutes. Atop a platform four feet above the floor, its long side running east to west, is a 16-foot long model of the White House. The model is intended to be viewed and not touched. This all-white model is at a scale of one inch equals four feet, or one foot equals 48 feet. The model is surrounded by a slanted display shelf, which contains displays and interactive computer monitors. Altogether, the model and shelf occupy 19 feet from left to right and 10 feet from front to back. You are looking at the south front of the White House. Throughout its history, the house and its grounds have undergone many changes. Yet the White House has long been recognizable around the world as the home of the President of the United States. The South Lawn and semicircular South Portico offer an unforgettable vista to visitors gazing at the White House. This model shows the White House as it appears today. The grounds surrounding the White House are indicated by a rough surface, while walks are shown by narrow smooth surfaces and driveways are designated with wide smooth surfaces. Starting at the center of the south front, the White House includes the rectangular four-floor executive residence, 170 feet wide from east to west and 85 feet deep from north to south. Its curved south portico added by architect James Hoban in 1824, projects 25 feet. At the center of the top floor is the octagonal solarium that extends over most of the south portico's roof. To the left or west of the executive residence, attached at the ground floor, are the one-story L-shaped west terrace and the three-story west wing. To the left of the west terrace is the domed roof of the Oval Office, which is considered part of the west wing. 
To the right or the east of the executive residence are the one-story east terrace and the two-story east wing. Altogether, the White House occupies 660 feet east to west and 170 feet north to south. The south front of the 16-foot White House model, which you face when your back is to the 6-foot-long north front of the tactile White House model. The interactive computer monitors and displays on the south front of the 16-foot White House model. Four and three-quarters minutes. Press the square button at any time to pause this description and then press it again to resume. Surrounding the raised model platform is a 15-inch deep slanted shelf, its front edge two and one-half feet above the floor. There are eight fully audio-described interactive computer monitors on the shelf around the large model, three on the north and south long sides, and one each on the short east and west sides. The monitors allow users to study the exterior of the White House at five different periods. They also provide a timeline of 100 milestones in White House history. Plus, you may visit 12 rooms in three areas of the grounds, including historic views of these settings and highlighted objects in each location. Near the left end of this side of the shelf is a single interactive computer monitor, and near the right end are two additional monitors. At the center of the shelf is a simple 20-inch by 7-inch model that shows a tactile silhouette that lays out the three-dimensional footprint of the present-day White House. Its orientation matches the 16-foot model with the south side and south portico facing you and the north side and north portico facing away from you. The executive residence is in the center with the west terrace and west wing to the left and the east terrace and east wing to the right. To the left of the simple model is a black and white photo of the south front of the White House from about 1846, the earliest known photo of the White House. Architect James Hoban added the semicircular south portico in 1824. Its sweeping columns created an imposing facade and soon became one of the best-known features of the White House. At the far left end of the shelf, next to a 1963 color photo of the exterior of the West Wing and Oval Office. Originally built in 1902, the West Wing was expanded significantly under President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933-45. In 1934, he added a second story and enlarged the basement to provide desperately needed offices for his growing staff. The 1934 renovations also moved the Oval Office to its present location next to the Rose Garden. Move around the corner to the left short side of the shelf, where, from left to right, are a photo of the White House conservatories about 1900, samples of the stone exterior with photos, and a computer monitor. To the far left, a black and white photo shows glass-paned conservatories of various shapes and sizes. A hothouse, known as an orangery, was created on the east side of the White House in 1835. In 1857, it was removed and replaced by a greenhouse or conservatory to the west of the White House, that was gradually expanded over the next four decades. In 1902, President Theodore Roosevelt, 1901-09, removed the greenhouses to make room for the West Wing. To the right are two small side-by-side samples of the stone exterior of the White House, the unpainted sample to the left and white-painted sample to the right. To protect its stone walls, workers whitewashed the presidential residence soon after it was built. 
the home soon became known informally as the White House, a name that has stuck ever since. To the right, two color photos of the fan-shaped window above the north door of the White House. Above the window, a carved stone garland includes leaves, acorns, flowers, and griffins. The upper photo shows the natural colored graining of the stone, stripped of paint in 1984. And the one below shows the stone smoothly painted white in 1999. To the right is a computer monitor. The interactive computer monitors and displays on the south front of the 16-foot White House model, which you face when your back is to the 6-foot-long north front of the tactile White House model. Tactile maps of the White House floors and grounds, 3 and 1 quarter minutes. The contents of each pull-out drawer are identical, and the tactile maps match the on-screen maps that are part of the interactive computer program. You may wish to examine the maps before starting the interactive and then use them for reference while exploring the interactive. The on-screen maps are not audio described. Press the square button to pause this description and then press it again to resume the description when you are ready to continue. The tactile maps are arranged in two columns with three maps at the left and two maps at the right. Above each map is its label in print and braille. The top of each map is north. At the top of the left column is the map of the second floor of the executive residence. To the left of the southeast or lower right corner is the one described room on this floor, the Lincoln bedroom. In the middle of the left column is the map of the state floor. At the top or north center outside the building is the rectangular outline of the north portico. And just below, inside, is the entrance hall shaped like a wide, upside-down letter T. Below, at the left or southwest corner, is the large square state dining room. To its right or east is the red room. To the right or east in the center of the south side of the residence is the oval blue room. Below this room, outside the building, is the curved south portico. To the right or east of the oval blue room is the green room, the same size as the red room. To the right, at the east end of this floor, extending the depth of the residence from the north front to south front, is the rectangular east room. At the bottom of the left column is the map of the west wing. At the lower right or southeast corner is the one described room, the Oval Office. At the top of the right column is the map of the ground floor. At the upper left corner, the northwest, is the kitchen. And at the upper right corner, the northeast, is the rectangular library. At the center of the south is the Oval Diplomatic Reception Room. To the right or east is the China Room. The map of the White House grounds extends from the center to the bottom of the right column. North or above the residence are the North Portico and North Grounds. At the North Portico, a curved driveway and sidewalks meet at the entrance. South or below the White House are the South Grounds. At the south, below the residence, beyond the curved South Portico, the central circular part of the South Grounds. At the left center of this map is the rectangular Rose Garden, which is southwest of the residence, bordered on its top and left sides by the L-shaped West Terrace. Farther to the left, or west, are the Oval Office and West Wing. Tactile maps of the White House floors and grounds. 
in a pull-out drawer under each of the eight interactive computer monitors on the shelf surrounding the 16-foot White House model. Operating instructions for the Explore the White House interactive computer. Two minutes. These instructions are the same for all eight interactive computers, which provide the same program. You will operate the audio description version of the interactive computer with an eight-button keypad inset into the shelf next to each monitor. While using audio description, do not touch the screens of the monitors. While using the interactive, you do not need your audio description device. There are three monitors on the north and south sides, the long sides, whose keypads are to the right of these monitors. There is a single monitor on the east and west sides, the short sides, whose keypads are to the left. There are four steps to access the audio description for the interactive computers. Please listen carefully to all the steps before you proceed. First, locate the interactive computer monitor you wish to use. Second, find the jack on the front of the shelf just below the keypad adjacent to your monitor. Note the two buttons next to the jack, which will adjust the volume of the interactive's audio description. Third, unplug the earphone from your handheld audio description device and then plug the earphone into the jack. Fourth, once you have connected your earphone, locate the round green button on the lower right corner of the keypad and press it once. This will start the audio description to guide you through the operation of the interactive computer and content. Remember the pull-out drawer of tactile maps below each monitor. When you are finished with the interactive, be sure to close the drawer. Then unplug your earphone from under the keypad and plug it back into this audio description device. If you would like to hear these instructions again, press the square button twice. Now you're ready to unplug the earphone from this device and plug it into the jack below the keypad. Operating instructions for the Explore the White House interactive computer, which apply to all eight interactive computer monitors on the shelf surrounding the 16-foot White House model. The Presidential Portrait Display and Four Seasons Photographs Introduction The display of all the presidential portraits is located on the wall of the South Arcade opposite the doorways to the restroom vestibule. A series of four eliminated photos of the White House in all seasons is set into the opposite wall of the South Arcade to the right of the restroom vestibule doorways and spaced every 12 feet. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The Presidential Portrait Display, 2 and one half minutes. This illuminated display containing portraits of each U.S. president is 11 feet wide and 8 feet high. It is divided into three equal panels with a blue-gray background and white lettering. The first three rows across contain color portraits of 12 presidents, while the fourth row has eight. Each portrait is contained within an oval 12 inches high by 8 inches wide. Below each portrait is the president's name and term of office. The portraits are arranged in chronological order, beginning on the upper left with George Washington and moving to your right, then continuing on to the second, third, and fourth horizontal rows. The presidents, along with their years of office, are 
in the first row, George Washington, 1789 to 1797, John Adams, 1797 to 1801, Thomas Jefferson, 1801 to 1809, James Madison, 1809 to 1817, James Monroe, 1817 to 1825, John Quincy Adams, 1825 to 1829, Andrew Jackson, 1829 to 1837, Martin Van Buren, 1837 to 1841, William Henry Harrison, 1841, John Tyler, 1841 to 1845, James K. Polk, 1845 to 1849, and Zachary Taylor, 1849 to 1850. In the second row, Millard Fillmore, 1850 to 1853, Franklin Pierce, 1853 to 1857, James Buchanan, 1857 to 1861, Abraham Lincoln, 1861 to 1865, Andrew Johnson, 1865 to 1869, Ulysses S. Grant, 1869 to 1877, Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877 to 1881, and Grover Cleveland, 1893 to 1897. In the third row, William McKinley, 1897 to 1901. Theodore Roosevelt, 1901 to 1909. William H. Taft, 1909 to 1913. Woodrow Wilson, 1913 to 1921. Warren G. Harding, 1921 to 1923. Calvin Coolidge, 1923 to 1929. Herbert Hoover, 1929 to 1933. Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933 to 1945. Harry S. Truman, 1945 to 1953. Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1953 to 1961. John F. Kennedy, 1961 to 1963 and Lyndon B. Johnson, 1963-1969. In the fourth row, Richard M. Nixon, 1969-1974. Gerald R. Ford, 1974-1977. Jimmy Carter, 1977-1981. Ronald Reagan, 1981-1989. George Bush, 1989-1993. William J. Clinton, 1993 to 2001. George W. Bush, 2001 to 2009. And Barack Obama, since 2009. The Presidential Portrait Display, located on the north wall of the South Arcade, opposite the doorways to the restroom vestibule. The White House and Four Seasons Photographs Display, one and one quarter minutes. Along the arcade, beginning to the right of the doors to the restroom vestibule, are four illuminated photos of the White House and President's Park during the winter, spring, autumn, and summer. Each photo is five and one-half feet high by two and one-half feet wide and enclosed in a white frame. 
First, the wetter photo shows a view of the White House north front from the side. In the foreground, overhanging branches laden with heavy snow. A black driveway curves through snow-covered grounds to the north portico. Next, the spring photo shows a portion of the White House north front. On the north lawn in the foreground, a fountain shoots water into the air in the center of a shallow, round pool. Set against the outside of the pool are hundreds of long-stemmed red tulips. Against a blue sky, an American flag flies above the White House. Next, the summer photo shows a brightly lit White House south front at night. High above, pink and white fireworks radiate in every direction. Finally, the autumn photo shows the White House south front in the background against a blue sky and trees with orange and yellow leaves. The White House in Four Seasons Photographs Display Set into the south wall of the South Arcade, to the right as you face the restroom vestibule doorways. The Preserving White House History and the White House Collection Displays Introduction As you face the east end of Baldridge Hall where the theater is located, along the left side of this arcade are four large glass display cases, each 11 feet wide by 8 feet high. Opposite these, set within the wall to the right, are four smaller white-framed display cases with golden-brown interiors. All displays contain White House artifacts or reproductions of White House artifacts. The displays are described in five segments from west to east along both sides of the South Arcade. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area, then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. Preserving White House History The first large display case, west to east, two and one-half minutes. At the top of this large display case, beginning at the left, the words, Preserving White House History. The White House is a living museum housing remarkable works of art and extraordinary examples of fine craftsmanship. Its collection includes priceless historical artifacts reflecting more than 200 years of the American presidency. During the 1800s, many White House furnishings and decorations were sold or discarded. Concern about preserving the historic nature of the house started growing in the late 1800s when First Ladies began collecting tableware used by their predecessors. First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy, 1961-63, established a more formal museum program at the White House. Successive administrations have continued to expand the White House holdings into one of the country's best collections of American fine and decorative arts. At the top center is a painting of a woman in a flowing green dress holding a child on her lap with a young girl standing to the left. Young Mother and Two Children by Mary Cassatt, 1908 The only American painter to exhibit with the French Impressionists, Cassatt often portrayed mothers and children. Below and to the left is a photo of workers on scaffolds hanging wallpaper in the Blue Room in 1995. The walls are covered with off-white wallpaper with a yellow-gold geometric design, and at the top of the wall, a wallpaper border mimics a blue valance with gold fringe. To the right, a photo of a small, reddish-brown wooden table with unequal hexagonal sides and legs that curve inward toward a tall, enclosed compartment and then splay outward to reach the floor. Attributed to New York cabinetmaker Duncan Fife, about 1810, 
This work table was acquired by First Lady Patricia Nixon, 1969 to 74. The right panel contains a photo of conservators reframing Gilbert Stewart's portrait of George Washington in the East Room in 2004. Two men hold the painting at an angle behind a large gold-colored frame, which is supported by two other workers. Preserving White House History The first large display case on the left side of the South Arcade, west to east. Preserving White House History The second large display case, west to east, and the first small display case. Three and one quarter minutes. On the left side of this large glass display case are four white shelves. The top shelf holds a white plate from the Woodrow Wilson State China Service. In the center is a gold-colored presidential seal surrounded by successive rings of dark blue and gold. First Lady Edith Wilson, 1915-21, ordered the first American-made State China Service, manufactured by Lenox China. This service was also the first to bear the presidential seal. On the next shelf down are items acquired by First Lady Mary Lincoln, 1861-65. Shown are two pieces of stemmed glassware, one red and one clear, each engraved with the U.S. coat of arms. To their right is a dinner plate with a scalloped edge, ringed in purple and gold. At the center is the U.S. coat of arms in blue, green, and red. The third shelf contains a six-inch-high clear water bottle, probably ordered by President Franklin Pierce, 1853-57, as part of a state glass service. It has a narrow neck and is engraved with the U.S. coat of arms. To the right is a stemmed cut-glass water goblet, also engraved with the U.S. coat of arms. It is part of the state glassware ordered by First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, 1933-45. The bottom shelf holds two dinner plates and two cut glass pieces of stemware. The left plate, part of the service ordered by President and Mrs. James K. Polk, is white with a gilded scalloped edge and a rose pattern in the center. On the top rim is the red, white, and blue U.S. shield. Next are a cut glass water goblet and a champagne glass, both with the presidential seal and cut in the brilliant style pattern. On the right is a white dinner plate with a dark blue rim decorated with gold-colored designs and the U.S. coat of arms in the center. First Lady Caroline Harrison, 1889-92, selected this glassware and chose a French china service decorated with the goldenrod and corn of her native state of Indiana. To the right in the display case are two chairs and a vintage radio, which face the opposite side of the display. They are described from the other side. Turn to face the small display case in the opposite wall. At the top is a painting entitled Gypsy Girl with Flowers. A young girl with dark hair and eyes wearing a pink dress sits in front of multicolored flowers. Many objects in the White House highlight the nation's history, diversity, and accomplishments. This painting is by Robert Henry, an American painter, teacher, and promoter of modern American art. Below, a white sculpture, 19 inches high by 16 inches wide by 12 inches deep, showing a man, two women, and a boy in 19th century clothing and hats chatting across adjacent church pews. Sculptor John Rogers became famous for tabletop sculptures inspired by everyday life in small town or rural America. 
These plaster sculptures sold for low prices to a mass market in the 1800s. Preserving White House History The second large display case with dinnerware and furniture on the left side of the South Arcade, west to east, plus the first small display case in the opposite wall. The White House Collection The third large display case, west to east, and the second and third small display cases. Four and one quarter minutes. On display platforms inside this case are several items, three of which are viewable from both sides of the display. A silver boat-shaped centerpiece, a vintage sewing machine, and a large china bowl. Others are best viewed from the other side and are described there. At the left, a silver centerpiece, three and one-half feet long, two feet wide, and three feet high, is a sailboat resembling a gravy boat, which narrows at the front to a curling figurehead. A single mast in the center holds a billowing square sail. At the top of the mast, a bushy-tailed squirrel stands on its hind legs. Lines run from the bottom of the sail to the back of the boat, where they are held by a seated Native American man. His long hair is decorated with feathers. In his extended right hand is a short sword. In his left, a round shield. A herringbone pattern is engraved on the side of the boat, which rests on a mirrored tray bordered by water lilies and other marsh plants. First Lady Julia Grant, 1869-77, acquired this silver centerpiece at the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition in 1876. The boat depicts the history of Hiawatha from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem. To the right is a portable sewing machine, 20 inches wide, 10 inches deep, and 12 inches high, resting on a brown wooden base. It is black with silver-colored knobs and wheels. Seamstress Lillian Rogers Parks used this Kenmore sewing machine to make blackout curtains for the White House windows during World War II. Parks served the White House for 30 years. At the far right is a large round china bowl, 17 inches in diameter and 9 inches high. Made for First Lady Mary Lincoln, 1861-65, this state china punch bowl is white with a round purple base and a wide purple band around the upper rim, both trimmed with gold-colored bands. Ornate gold-colored repeating designs are on the interior and exterior. The U.S. coat of arms, an eagle with its wings spread above a shield in the design of an American flag, is on the inside of the bowl. Turn to face the small display case in the opposite wall. Attached to the display's upper back is a bronze wall sconce, 30 inches high by 9 inches wide. A wavy-haired, winged cupid, its head bowed, holds a cut glass, 7-inch diameter globe above its head. When electricity was installed in the White House in 1891, the Edison General Electric Company mounted four electric wall sconces, including this one, in the family dining room. Below is a set of two brass and iron andirons in the Egyptian revival style of the French Empire period. They were made for the redecorated Blue Room in 1902. Facing each other on 12-inch by 5-inch brass pedestals, Identical figures represent a resting sphinx with an Egyptian headdress, a male human head, the upper body of a woman, and the lower body of a lion. Move 12 feet to your right to the next small display case. Attached to the upper back of the display 
is a 20-inch wide by 16-inch high landscape painting. At the center are trees in fall colors with low mountains against a partly cloudy sky in the background. Below is a 24-inch high by 22-inch long dark bronze Cyrus Edwin Dallin sculpture from about 1916 of a Native American man seated on a horse. The feathers of his headdress extend down onto the sides of the horse. His face is upturned toward the sky. He holds his arms out to his sides with his palms upturned. The White House Collection The third large display case on the left side of the South Arcade west to east and the second and third small display cases in the opposite wall. The White House Collection, fourth large display case, west to east. Four minutes. At the top left of this large glass display case are the words, The White House Collection. The White House is a living museum housing remarkable works of art and extraordinary examples of fine craftsmanship. These include furniture, textiles, silverware, and china that showcase American decorative arts. The White House Collection also contains paintings selected for their artistic and historic value, including portraits of presidents and first ladies, and works by leading American artists, including Albert Bierstadt, Thomas Aikens, John Singer Sargent, Mary Cassatt, and Georgia O'Keeffe. On the bottom of the left panel, The Builders by Jacob Lawrence, one of the first artists to paint modernist depictions of African Americans. Against a red background, Angular figures depicting whites and African Americans build a structure, haul lumber, and climb a ladder. At the top of the center panel, a reproduction of Howard Chandler Christie's full-length portrait of First Lady Grace Coolidge, 1923-29, which hangs in the China Room. Standing in the foreground, a smiling, dark-haired Mrs. Coolidge in a sleeveless crimson ankle-length dress with a sheer shawl over her shoulders. Her right hand rests on the head of a seated white collie. Portraits of presidents and first ladies are displayed throughout the White House. To the left of the portrait is a photo facing a corner of the china room, with the painting on the right wall and a white marble fireplace on the left wall. Glass-fronted cabinets with examples of state china, silver, and glassware flank the fireplace. On the lower left of the center panel, the avenue in the rain, a 1917 painting by the American Impressionist Child Hassam. Along the right side of the hazy blue scene, a row of brightly colored American flags line a rainy street. Their reflections in the wet sidewalks join the blurred, dark shapes of figures holding umbrellas. To the right is a photo of a reddish-brown concert grand piano in the East Room. Made for the White House in 1938 by Steinway & Sons, the piano rests on three gilded American eagle supports. On the side are stenciled gold-colored historical American figures performing or listening to music. On the right panel, a photo of an ornately carved reddish-brown desk. On all sides, an elaborate border sits atop vertical panels carved with arch shapes. The center panel bears the presidential seal. An eagle clutches a sheaf of arrows in its left talon, and an olive branch in its right. On its breast is a shield with stars across its top and vertical stripes below. Behind the outstretched wings, rays radiate in all directions. Across the top is a scroll with the words E Pluribus Unum. Above it, a curving cloud containing 13 stars. 
Ever since Queen Victoria presented President Rutherford B. Hayes with the Resolute Desk in 1880, many presidents have used it in their second floor office or the Oval Office. The desk was made from timbers from HMS Resolute, a British ship recovered by American whalers in the Arctic. Below, a photo of a dark blue china plate with a scalloped edge. On the plate are five representations of three dimensional shiny white oyster shells. This oyster plate and other items from the Rutherford B. Hayes State China Service feature designs based on American plants and wildlife. Below the plate is Rocky Mountain Landscape, a painting by Albert Bierstadt, who loaned this and similar paintings to the White House in the 1880s. A tree lined lake is surrounded by high, craggy mountains partially covered by billowing sunlit clouds. On the left, a high waterfall cascades from a cliff. The White House Collection. The fourth large display case on the left side of the South Arcade, west to east. The White House Collection, fourth small display case, one and one half minutes. On a three foot high white stand is a reddish brown clock, 14 inches wide by 22 inches high. The round clock dial has Roman numerals in the center of a light area with an arched top. On the corners of the light space are printed designs of Greek urns and flowers. Above the dial is the emblem of an American eagle. At its top, the wood cabinet tapers in a series of gradually narrowing levels, ultimately topped by a brass handle. At each corner of the cabinet top are turned brass finials. The cabinet rests on a wooden base. Gold colored legs splay out from each corner. This New York mahogany bracket clock from about 1785 to 90 gives an American flavor to a traditionally British form by the use of an American eagle. Below the clock is an armchair, 35 inches high, 23 inches wide, and 20 inches deep. The chair is dark brown wood and upholstered on the seat, back, and upper arms in shiny light pink damask with repeating patterns of wavy lines and flowers. The seat is broad and the upholstered back tapers downward within its wood frame. The fluted, tapered legs are straight. This mahogany chair, attributed to American cabinet maker Adam Haynes, may have been in the house in Philadelphia, used by President George Washington, 1789 97, as his official residence. The White House Collection. The fourth small display case on the right side of the South Arcade, opposite the fourth large display case on the left. The White House Collection and Preserving White House History Displays Introduction. As you face the west end of Baldridge Hall, where the information desk is located, along the right side of this arcade are four large glass display cases, each 11 feet wide by 8 feet high. Opposite these, set within the wall to the left, are four smaller white framed display cases with golden brown interiors. All displays contain White House artifacts or reproductions of White House artifacts. The displays are described in five segments from east to west along both sides of the South Arcade. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area, then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The White House Collection. 
The first small display case on the left side of the South Arcade is opposite the first large display case on the right. The White House Collection, the first large display case on the right side of the South Arcade east to west. The White House Collection, the second large display case on the right side of the South Arcade east to west, plus the second and third small display cases in the opposite wall. Preserving White House History the third large display case on the right side of the South Arcade east to west, plus the fourth small display case in the opposite wall. Preserving White House History The fourth large display case on the right side of the South Arcade east to west, opposite the doors to the restroom vestibule. The President's Park Display Introduction This glass display case, 16 feet wide by 6 feet high, is divided into five vertical panels. From the left, the first three panels introduce President's Park. The fourth panel begins Free Speech in President's Park and covers lighting the National Christmas Tree. The fifth panel at the right concludes Free Speech in President's Park and includes Caring for the White House and President's Park. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The President's Park displays first three panels, two and one-half minutes. In the early 1800s, the White House grounds consisted of muddy fields filled with building debris and workmen's huts. Shaped by successive plans guiding the city's development, President's Park reached its current configuration in the 1960s. Today, it covers 64 acres and includes Lafayette Park, the Ellipse, and nearby areas. Open to the public for celebrations, demonstrations, special events, and everyday recreation, President's Park highlights the White House's place in a democratic society. At the bottom of the first panel at the left, and continuing on to the second panel, is a timeline of President's Park history. Beginning with Pierre L'Enfant's original city plan in 1791, the timeline includes the development of the National Mall in 1851, the extension of the South Grounds in 1873, followed by the creation of the Ellipse in 1880, the inclusion of President's Park in the National Park System in 1933, the creation of military memorials in various years, landscape and historic preservation plans in the 1930s and 1960s, and the creation of Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House as a pedestrian street. On the top of the second panel, a photo taken from above the second inaugural parade for President George W. Bush, 2001-09. Motorcycles with sidecars pass down Pennsylvania Avenue before a tall reviewing stand. In the background, the north front of the White House and leafless trees. Below, a photo of servicemen and civilians dancing in a straight conga line to celebrate the news of Japan's surrender ending World War II on August 14, 1945. Next, at the request of President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, White House butler John H. Johnson brings hot coffee to demonstrators in Lafayette Park who are protesting nuclear testing, 1962. Below the photos on a shelf in front of the display case is a plexiglass box holding a black urn-like finial 14 inches high. These ornate iron finials top the White House fence posts. 
The earliest existing fence sections are located along Pennsylvania Avenue and date from about 1818. The center of the display, in front of the third panel, features an aerial panoramic color photo, three and one half feet wide by five feet high, taken from south of the White House. Near the center is the White House, and below it are the south grounds and the north half of the ellipse. The President's Park First Three Panels began at the left end of the President's Park glass display case. The President's Park displays fourth panel, two minutes. This panel is filled with a sepia-toned photo of a group of women dressed in long, dark winter coats and hats picketing in 1917. Behind them, a wrought iron fence and the White House North Portico in the background. One holds a sign which reads, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? Suffrage groups fought for women's voting rights from 1848 until 1920, when the 19th Amendment to the Constitution granted women the right to vote. A low table inside the bottom of the case and a slanted display surface in front of the case contain images and objects related to lighting the national Christmas tree. President Calvin Coolidge, 1923-29, lit the first national Christmas tree on the ellipse in 1923. Cut trees were used from 1954 until 1972. A more permanent national Christmas tree was planted on the ellipse in 1973. The ceremony today includes live music and dance performances broadcast on television. On the table inside the case, at the left, are two examples of ornaments created for the 56 trees on the ellipse representing the U.S. states, territories, and District of Columbia. To the right of the ornaments is a photo of President Harry S. Truman lighting the National Christmas Tree in 1945, and further right, the tree lighting switch box used from 1937 to the present. The reddish-brown wooden box has a silver-colored plate and a toggle switch. Engraved on the plate are the names of the presidents and the years used. In front of the display case is a slanted display surface, with, at the left, the title Lighting the National Christmas Tree. To the right is a duplicate of the tree lighting switch box. Flipping the switch to the up position lights the photo to simulate lighting the tree. To its right, a photo of the National Christmas Tree at dusk. The President's Park fourth panel covers lighting the National Christmas Tree. The fourth panel from the left end of the President's Park glass display case. The President's Park displays fifth panel, three and one quarter minutes. The fifth panel, with the title Free Speech in President's Park. One of the basic foundations of American liberty, the First Amendment to the Constitution forbids Congress from making any law abridging the freedom of speech. President's Park provides a forum for practicing this fundamental right. Individual demonstrators and large groups can safely gather to voice their concerns directly to the President. The National Park Service oversees the impartial rules governing the hundreds of demonstrations, vigils, marches, and other forms of peaceful protests that occur here each year. The top left color photo shows women mostly wearing black standing side by side in 1966 on Pennsylvania Avenue with a fountain and the North Portico in the background. Two women hold a sign between them which reads, We mourn our soldiers, they are dying in vain. 
Only Americans can stop it. Anti-war protests raged throughout the country in the 1960s and early 1970s, including numerous events on the Ellipse and in Lafayette Park. To the right, a black-and-white photo of civil rights activists protesting discriminatory practices in Washington, D.C. in 1963, with the North Portico in the background. African-American men in business suits carry signs. One holds a bullhorn. Around them are white and African-American men holding microphones. One operates a home movie camera. Some signs read, D.C. Branch, NAACP, Equality for All Now, No Federal Funds for Apartheid, and Stop Hurting America. The Washington chapter of the Congress of Racial Equality protests discriminatory practices in Washington, D.C., 1963. Below, a black-and-white photo of tractors and trucks blocking Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House in 1979. Farmers from around the country came to Washington, D.C. to try to convince the government to raise crop prices. In front of the left of the panel, a small plexiglass box holds three protest pens of the sort often worn by demonstrators. On the left, the pen reads, Power to the People, and on the right, United We Shall Overcome. A pen in the center represents the women's suffrage struggle. In front of the display case, a slanted-top display with, at the right, caring for the White House and President's Park. The National Park Service began caring for the White House and President's Park in 1933. The NPS staff helps guide and educate visitors at the White House Visitor Center and in President's Park. The NPS is responsible for preserving and maintaining the White House exterior, the gardens surrounding the White House, the grounds of President's Park, and the principal public rooms of the executive residence. To the right, a color photo shows a National Park Service ranger conducting an interpretive program outside the White House fence. To the right, a photo of a National Park Service stonemason using a tool to repair part of a White House chimney. The President's Park Display's fifth panel, which concludes free speech in President's Park and includes caring for the White House and President's Park is at the right end of the President's Park glass display case. The President's Home Display Introduction In this area, there are four displays. With your back to the narrow, freestanding, living in the White House display, you face the moving day and the President's Home displays. To their left, at a right angle, is a similar display panel adapting to a new life. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The moving day display, three and one half minutes. The entire illuminated glass-fronted panel, 16 feet wide by 8 feet high, is divided into five equally sized panels. The left three panels have a white background. Moving day. After each change of administration, the White House experiences a whirlwind of activity. The outgoing first family packs their belongings and says goodbye to the loyal staff that has served them for years. In the 1800s, some departing families lingered for weeks, but today the resident staff has just a few hours to prepare the White House for its next occupants. As soon as the inaugural parade ends, 
the new president and first family move in and begin exploring their new home. At the top, a black and white photo of President elect Woodrow Wilson, 1913 to 21, and President William H. Taft, 1909 to 13. Outside the White House before Wilson's inauguration ceremony on March 4, 1913, both smiling men wear dark overcoats. To the right, a photo of President and Mrs. Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1953 to 61, saying goodbye to uniformed staff before departing the White House on January 20, 1961. Next to the right, a color photo of Chief Usher J. B. West greeting First Lady Claudia Lady Bird Johnson, 1963 to 69, and her daughter Lucy with two beagles on leashes. The Johnson family moved into the White House in December 1963, following the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, 1961 to 63. Below and to the left, a political cartoon shows a teddy bear with a sad face on the White House steps. Its caption reads, "To go or not to go." In the background, workers load boxes onto a moving van. Many presidents have mixed emotions about leaving the White House. As captured by this 1909 political cartoon depicting the departure of President Theodore Roosevelt, 1901 to 09. Next to the right, a smiling President Barack Obama, since 2009, in a tuxedo with white tie, prepares to leave for an inaugural ball on January 20, 2009. Daughter Malia takes his photo while her younger sister Sasha dances off to the side. Next, a photo of men in the Oval Office removing the desk used by President George Bush, 1989 to 93, on January 20th, 1993. Presidents can use furniture from the permanent White House collection or bring their own. Next, to the right, First Lady Betty Ford, 1974 to 77, in a dark pantsuit, smiles as she dances on top of the cabinet room's long oval table. To lighten the mood the day before leaving the White House after a close election loss, trained dancer First Lady Betty Ford, 1974 to 77, dances on January 19, 1977. Along the bottom of the first three panels, from the left, a timeline of moving day. 9:30 a.m. President and First Lady say goodbye to the staff. 10 a.m. President and First Lady have a traditional tea with the president-elect. 11 a.m. Motorcade heads for the inaugural ceremony. Moving trucks are waved onto the grounds. 11:30 a.m. First family's remaining belongings are loaded into vans en route to their private home. 12:01 p.m. Residence staff moves the new first family's belongings into the White House and begins unpacking. 5 p.m. New president and first lady return to the White House from the inaugural parade. The moving day display at the left. The president's home display panels, one and three quarters minutes. These two panels have white text on a green background. The president's home. Until the early 1900s, the second floor of the White House held both the president's office and the first family's private quarters. Official visitors often encroached on the family's privacy as they waited to meet with the president. Since the creation of the West Wing offices in 1902, however, the second floor has become a refuge for the president and his family. On the right panel, four photos and a 19th-century illustration are arranged vertically. 
At the top, President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, plays with John Jr. on the White House West Wing Colonnade in 1963. Seated on the top step, President Kennedy wears a gray business suit and holds a toy horse. His son leans into his father's lap and laughs. Below, a color engraving of President Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877-81, and his family entertaining friends in an ornately decorated room, today the second-floor yellow oval room. Below, a laughing President Gerald R. Ford, 1974-77, stands in the second-floor White House residence kitchen as he demonstrates making toast to laughing photographers. To the right, President and Mrs. Ronald Reagan, 1981-89, are greeted by their dog Rex, a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, after their helicopter lands on the White House South Lawn. At the bottom, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1953-61, casually dressed, barbecues on a small grill on the White House rooftop. The President's Home Display Panels to the right of the three moving day display panels. The adapting to a new life display, four and one quarter minutes. This three panel glass display case is 10 feet wide by eight feet high. The left panel displays a large photo of President Calvin Coolidge, 1923 to 29, walking on the West Colonnade with his Secret Service detail. The Secret Service has officially provided protection to the President and his family since 1902. In front of the photo stands a small, light brown bedside table. The table is from a shop First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, 1933-45, helped establish to create jobs near her home in Hyde Park, New York. On the center panel are five photos. At the top left, a smiling President Richard M. Nixon, 1969-74, reaches through the high black White House fence to shake hands. To the right, Susan Ford, daughter of President Gerald R. Ford, 1974-77, washes her car with the North Portico in the background. To the right, television stars Roy Rogers and Dale Evans help David Eisenhower, grandson of President Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1953-61, celebrate his eighth birthday at the White House in 1956. Living in the White House can be a remarkable experience, and the first family enjoys many privileges. Yet almost every first family has remarked how difficult life in the White House can be. Finding time to be together is never easy, and living in the people's house means the first family faces almost constant public scrutiny. Below and to the left, two photos. At left, First Lady Betty Ford, 1974-77, to looks out a large West Sitting Hall semicircular window toward the Oval Office. To the right, an earlier photo shows First Lady Frances Cleveland, 1886-89 and 1893-97, in front of the same window. To the right, near the center of the two right panels, a black-and-white photo of the elaborately decorated East Room. During the 1800s, most first families decorated the public and private White House rooms according to their own personal tastes. In 1874, President Ulysses S. Grant, 1869-77, refurbished the East Room for his daughter Nellie's wedding. 
at the right, an engraving of a member of the White House police in plain clothes greeting visitors in the extravagantly decorated entrance hall in 1881. The People's House The White House is a symbolic building belonging to the entire nation. First families may bring their own furnishings and redecorate the living quarters, but the Committee for the Preservation of the White House advises the families regarding changes to the public parts of the executive residence. Moreover, first families have to adapt to a steady stream of visitors coming into what is also their home. On the floor of the case, a white table holds a cream-colored casting, 28 inches wide by 9 inches high at an angle. Inscribed in ornate lettering, the words written by President John Adams, 1797 to 1801, to his wife on his second night in the White House. The original is carved into the fireplace of the state dining room. I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it. May none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof. In front of the display case is a slanted-top display table. On the left, a room layout of the second-floor family quarters, drawn by First Lady Edith Roosevelt upon moving into the White House with her husband Theodore Roosevelt, 1901-09, and their six children. To the right, a photo of the family on the White House lawn. On the right side is a brown flip book with white lettering. This book provides information to help you settle into your new home. On the right side of each page is a tab. In descending order, they read Residence Quarters, Dining, Travel, Recreation, Entertaining Guests, and Holidays. On each page is a photo and text for each subject. The Adapting to a New Life Display at a right angle to the left of the Moving Day Display. The Living in the White House Display, one and one-half minutes. This standalone display is a single white panel, five feet wide by eight feet high. Like any other home, the White House has witnessed joyous celebrations and unexpected sorrows. First families have hosted elaborate weddings in the East Room and outdoor parties in the Rose Garden. They have also mourned the passing of loved ones in the state floor reception rooms. At top left, a photo of President and Mrs. Gerald R. Ford, 1974-77, celebrating their 26th wedding anniversary just days after Mrs. Ford underwent breast cancer surgery in 1974. At top right, an engraving of the 1886 wedding of Francis Folsom and President Grover Cleveland, 1885-89, and 1893-97, to the only president to marry in the White House. Below, a color photo of First Lady Michelle Obama since 2009 and daughters Malia and Sasha playing in deep snow on the South Lawn in 2009. Below, a large black-and-white photo of the North Portico. In front of it are numerous soldiers in dark uniforms. Tad Lincoln, young son of President Abraham Lincoln, 1861 to 65, stands in the foreground. At the left is another photo of young Tad Lincoln in a military uniform. Tad loved to play war games and watch the Union soldiers protecting his house during the Civil War. Once, he even interrupted his father's meeting by bombarding the door with a toy cannon. The narrow, freestanding, living-in-the-White-House display Behind you when facing the moving day display panel. 
The Family Celebrations Display, 2 and 1 quarter minutes. A display on a single white panel, 6 and 1 half feet wide and 8 feet high. Just as they would in their private homes, first families have held intimate birthday parties and quiet anniversary dinners in the executive residence. White House weddings have a long tradition of being especially elaborate affairs. For Tricia Nixon's wedding in 1971, Chef Henry Haller made a seven-tiered cake to match the high ceilings of the White House. At top left, a photo of the small grandchildren of President George Bush, 1989-93, playing in artificial snow in front of a decorated Christmas tree in the entrance hall. To the right, the White House executive pastry chef presents Chelsea Clinton, daughter of President William J. Clinton, 1993-2001, with a birthday cake as she celebrates with friends in the solarium. To the right, President and Mrs. William H. Taft, 1909-13, share a laugh with family members on their 25th wedding anniversary in 1911. In the center, a photo of President Barack Obama, since 2009, laughing at a birthday party with his family and staff in the Roosevelt Room in 2009. He holds a large card handmade by his daughter, Sasha, who stands at his side. In the center right, a newspaper illustration of Nellie Grant, daughter of President Ulysses S. Grant, 1869-77, marrying Algernon Sartoris in the lavishly decorated East Room in 1874. At the bottom left, President and Mrs. Ronald Reagan, 1981-89, wearing casual sweaters, decorate the family Christmas tree in the second-floor West Sitting Hall in 1983. To the right, Amy Carter, daughter of President Jimmy Carter, 1977-81, carves pumpkins with friends in the China Room at her 10th birthday party in October 1977. At the far right, Lucy Johnson, daughter of President and Mrs. Lyndon B. Johnson, 1963-69, and her new husband, Patrick Nugent, cut the first slice from their very tall, multi-tiered wedding cake in 1966. The Stage and Ceremony Wall Display Introduction, one and one quarter minutes. Near the east end of Baldridge Hall, perpendicular to the White House's office, and White House's home display cases, in the center is a 10-foot-wide by 8-foot-tall color close-up photo of the South Portico. To the right is the outside the White House display panel. At the right side of this panel, you may go behind these displays to a four-row widescreen theater, which shows the White House, reflections from within, every 20 minutes. In the film, presidents, first ladies, and first family members reflect on their experiences in the White House. When facing the outside the White House display panel, to its right, at a right angle, is the White House grounds display case. When facing the same outside the White House display panel, behind you is the White House grounds display panel, tactile map, and photos of the grounds. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The Outside the White House Display, one and one-half minutes. This display is divided into two panels, each five feet wide by ten feet high. 
Although the White House has more than 100 rooms, presidents sometimes need more space to entertain guests. Fortunately, the president and his family have a large lawn. Presidents use the White House grounds as a stage for performances and a reception area for greeting guests. The intimate gardens provide a beautiful setting for receptions and dinners, while the expansive grounds have witnessed picnics, concerts, and even t-ball games. At the top, the kilt-wearing Scottish Black Watch Royal Highland Regiment performs with musical instruments on the South Lawn in 1963. At the middle of the panel, 95-year-old composer and pianist U.B. Blake performs for President and Mrs. Jimmy Carter, 1977-81, and guests at a jazz festival on the South Lawn in 1978. Below, a black-and-white photo of President and Mrs. Calvin Coolidge, 1923-29, hosting a 1924 garden party for veterans wounded in World War I. At the bottom, a close-up color photo of boys and several adults in blue baseball uniforms. A baseball lover, President George W. Bush, 2001-09, hosted annual t-ball games on the South Lawn. On the right panel of the display, a 10-foot-tall color photo taken on the south portico looking south to the Washington Monument and Jefferson Memorial in the distance. The Outside the White House Display Panel To the right of the 10-foot-wide by 8-foot-tall color photo of the south portico. The White House Grounds Display Case, 3 and 3 quarters minutes. This three-panel glass display case is 10 and 1 half feet wide by eight feet high with a white background. Once farmland and pasture, the White House grounds have been transformed into a garden oasis. The carefully tended lawns and elaborate plantings provide the first family with a peaceful retreat. Beautiful gardens, both formal and informal, offer intimate settings for official ceremonies and private celebrations. Greenhouses and conservatories have supplied the White House with fresh flowers, including roses, camellias, and orchids. The grounds have also been used for recreation. At various times, they have included tennis courts, swimming pools, jungle gyms, horseshoe pits, putting greens, and basketball courts. At the top left, a hand-tinted photo of President Woodrow Wilson and First Lady Edith Wilson, 1913-21, standing by the East Garden's Lily Pond in 1916. To the right, on the South Lawn, on both sides of a high net, men in dark clothing and hats play a game with a large round ball. To keep President Herbert Hoover, 1929-33, physically fit, his physician invented Hoover Ball, a combination of tennis and volleyball played using a medicine ball. Below, young Caroline Kennedy, daughter of President John F. Kennedy, 1961 to 63, bounces on a trampoline in the White House Gardens in 1963. To the right, First Lady Lucy Hayes, 1877 to 81, with two of her children and a playmate, posing in the White House greenhouse in 1879. At bottom left, President Ronald Reagan, 1981 to 89, builds a three-tiered snowman with his son Michael and grandchildren in the Rose Garden in 1985. To the right, First Lady Claudia Ladybird Johnson, 1963-69, to dedicating the Jacqueline Kennedy Garden, formerly the East Garden. Next to the right, inside the display case, 
resting at an upward angle on a raised platform, a 14-inch wide by 11-inch high copper-colored slab imprinted with a pair of child-sized handprints. A herringbone pattern is scratched into the surface. Below the handprints, the name Lucinda Desha Robb is hand-inscribed. In front of the center of the display case, a small table with a slanted top holds a touchable bronze reproduction of the handprints and the name. Lucinda Robb, granddaughter of President Lyndon B. Johnson, 1963-69, made this handprint cast. Her print, along with those made by other presidential grandchildren, is embedded in the stone walkway in the children's garden. The right two-thirds of the display case's background panel contains a large, irregularly shaped cross-section of an elm tree planted by President John Quincy Adams, 1825-29. At its greatest dimensions, it's 56 inches wide and 60 inches high. The dark brown surface is varnished and covered by faint concentric rings. Across a portion of the cross-section, a timeline printed on clear plastic shows 11 milestones in the history of the White House grounds. After removal of the diseased tree in 1991, First Lady Barbara Bush, 1989-93, planted a tree propagated from this original tree. Below and left of the section are photos of the massive tree before its removal. At the far right of the case is a child's swing hanging from two chains. The seat and back are dark green wood slats, and the arms are down-curved black metal bands. The swing hung on various trees on the south grounds from the late 1970s until 2010. The White House Grounds Display Case at a right angle to the right of the outside the White House display panel. The White House grounds display panel and tactile map, two and one half minutes. On the display wall, a five foot wide by five foot high bird's eye view color drawing of the White House grounds with elements numbered to match the map legend and tactile map below. The features of the grounds are in shades of green, with the exception of the light blue swimming pool at the middle left and a fountain at the center of the lower third. The White House is just above center on the drawing. Its roofs are light gray, except for the roofs of the east and west terraces, which are brick red. Sidewalks and driveways are light gray. This 1996 garden plan depicts the north and south grounds. Since 1961, the National Park Service has cared for the White House grounds. In front of the wall display panel, a shallow table holds, at the left, a tactile map legend and the corresponding tactile map of the White House grounds. Together, the legend and map are 19 inches wide and 16 inches deep. If you would like to pause in order to explore the map before starting the description, press the square button now. Press it again when you are ready to hear the description. At the left, the legend is labeled with raised numbers, printed text, and braille. In numerical order, the areas of the legend are 1. Commemorative Tree 2. Rose Garden 3. Kennedy Garden 4. Horseshoe Pit 5. Swimming Pool 6. Kitchen Garden 7. Tennis Court 8. South Fountain and 9. White House To the right, the bronze map, labeled with raised and braille numbers, depicts the grounds from north to south, top to bottom. Irregularly textured mounds represent groupings of trees and plantings. 
At the top are the north grounds, with number one, the commemorative tree, near a circular fountain. Below is number nine, the White House, with the rectangular executive residence at the center, the west wing to the left, and the east wing to the right. Below, or south of the White House, to the left is number two, the Rose Garden, and to the right is number three, the Jacqueline Kennedy Garden. Farther south, below number two, are numbers four and five, the horseshoe pit and swimming pool. Below is number seven, the tennis court, and below that is number six, the kitchen garden. To the right, near the center, is number eight, the circular south fountain. The White House Grounds Display Panel and Tactile Map Facing the outside the White House display, this display panel and tactile map are behind you. The White House Grounds Photos, 3 minutes. There are 8 small photos in 2 horizontal rows of 4. Each photo, which has a printed number at its lower right corner, may be raised by a metal tab at its bottom to reveal its caption underneath. On the top row, at the left, number 1. On the North Lawn in 1977, President Jimmy Carter, 1977-81, holds a shovel over a small pile of dirt next to a young red maple. The custom of using trees to commemorate important events probably began with President Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877-81. To the right, number two, the Rose Garden in the foreground with the West Colonnade in the background. President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, redesigned this space, used as a rose garden since 1913, to accommodate large outdoor ceremonies. The large, broad lawn is flanked by flower beds, boxwood hedges, and magnolia and crabapple trees. In the next photo to the right, number three, the Jacqueline Kennedy Garden is at the left, with the east front of the executive residence and the east terrace at the right. First Lady Claudia Ladybird Johnson, 1963-69, dedicated this flower garden to First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy, 1961-63, in 1965. In the last photo, at the right end of the top row, number four, in 1991, President George Bush, 1989-93, wearing a suit and tie, pitches a horseshoe, watched by British monarch Queen Elizabeth II. On the bottom row, at the left, number five shows President Gerald R. Ford, 1974-77, swimming in an outdoor pool surrounded by reporters, camera operators, and sound technicians on its deck. President Ford installed an outdoor swimming pool in 1975 after President Richard M. Nixon, 1969-74, converted the indoor pool into a press room. To the right, the kitchen garden, number six. Surrounded by grass, more than a dozen square and rectangular wood-framed raised beds hold leafy green, red, and bluish-purple plants. Many presidents have had vegetable gardens on the White House grounds. First Lady Michelle Obama, since 2009, planted this garden on the South Lawn in 2009. It includes a beehive that provides honey for the White House kitchen. In the next photo to the right, number seven, a standing and seated crowd gathers around a tennis court. President Theodore Roosevelt, 1901-09, built the first tennis court behind the West Wing in 1903. In 1909, President William H. Taft, 1909-13, moved the tennis court to the South Lawn to make room for a West Wing expansion. In the last photo at the right end of the bottom row, number 8, 
The South Fountain with a tall plume of water rising from its circular pool. The current fountain, installed in 1876, is surrounded by approximately 8,000 tulips and 16,000 grape hyacinths in the spring. The White House Grounds Photos To the right of the tactile map on the table below the White House Grounds wall display panel. The No Place Like Home display introduction, one and one quarter minutes. In this area are four displays. Two of them glass display cases, one narrow freestanding display, and a round tabletop display. Facing east toward the theater, to the left is the three-part No Place Like Home display with a glass display case at its center. To the left of the No Place Like Home display, at a right angle, is the My Children Are the Pulse and Heartbeat of the White House freestanding display. Facing east toward the theater, opposite the My Children freestanding display, is the fried chicken plate on the Who Ordered That round tabletop display behind you. From this position, to the right, beyond the Who Ordered That tabletop display, is the Pressures of Daily Life three-panel glass display case. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The No Place Like Home display. Five minutes. This display has two white panels at left and right, each five and one half feet wide by eight feet high. Between them, in a narrow glass display case, the rear view of an ornate gold armchair with red upholstery. On top of the left panel, a quote from First Lady Abigail Adams, 1797 to 1801. We have not the least fence, yard, or other convenience without. And the great unfinished audience room I made a drying room of to hang up the clothes in. To the left, the words, no place like home. Early occupants of the White House had to share the second floor with the President's office space. Families crowded into this second-floor living area, reserving the first floor primarily for dining and entertaining. Near the top, a sepia illustration of a crowd of men hoping to receive government jobs gather on the second floor of the White House shortly after President Abraham Lincoln, 1861-65, assumed office. To the right, a black-and-white photo of the first-floor family dining area in 1900. White House staff in white jackets and black bow ties prepare a meal. Below, a tactile, simplified diagram of the 19th century White House second floor, showing how the floor may have been divided between home and office space in the 1800s. On the left, the home space occupies about 60% of the total space. Below, a black and white illustration of what is now the Yellow Oval Room, as it appeared when President Millard Fillmore 1850-53, installed the first White House library there in 1850. Below, to the left, is a painting of First Lady Abigail Adams, 1797-1801, in the unfinished blue-gray East Room in 1800. A woman and child watch a female servant hanging a sheet on an almost full clothesline that stretches across the room. President Andrew Jackson, 1829-37, finally finished decorating the East Room in 1829. At bottom right is the beginning of a timeline, 
Below the words Creature Comforts, a horizontal line of milestones goes from left to right, then continues on the right panel beyond the chair. Under each milestone is a cartoon drawing symbolizing each innovation. The milestones include interior water closets installed by President Thomas Jefferson in 1801, a bathtub by President Franklin Pierce in 1853, a telegraph room by President Andrew Johnson in 1866, an elevator by President James A. Garfield in 1881, and electric lighting by President Benjamin Harrison in 1891. Continuing on the bottom of the right panel, long-distance telephone call by President Woodrow Wilson in 1915, radio by President Warren G. Harding in 1922, Room air conditioning by President Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1933. First solar panels installed on West Wing Roof by President Jimmy Carter in 1977. And email and internet by President George Bush in 1992. Between the two panels is the back of a bright red armchair with a gilt frame sitting on a bright red square platform. Because it faces the opposite side of the display, it is described there. At the top of the right panel, a quote by the niece of First Lady Sarah Polk in 1846. There is but little privacy here. The house belongs to the government and everyone feels at home. In the center of the panel, on a broad green horizontal stripe, and below, four photos, each with a vertical line connecting to the timeline. At the left, a color image of the newly built West Wing in 1902. Offices were moved out of the residence, giving families more personal space on the second floor. To the right, a 1927 photo of a new third floor above the south portico, which added new guest and service rooms. At top right, a photo of a kitchen First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy, 1961-63, built on the second floor to create more privacy for her family. Below the timeline, Four photos, each with a vertical line connecting to the timeline above. At the left, a tennis court constructed in 1903 by President Theodore Roosevelt behind the new West Wing. To the right, an indoor swimming pool in 1933 in the West Terrace by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933-45. Next to the right, a black-and-white photo of a cloakroom in the East Terrace converted into a small movie theater in 1942 by President Franklin D. Roosevelt. At right, President Harry S. Truman, 1945-53, in a bowling alley he built in the West Wing basement in 1947. The three-part, no-place-like-home display, when facing east toward the theater, is to the left. The My Children Are the Pulse and Heartbeat of the White House display, three and three-quarters minutes. This standalone display is a single green panel with white lettering, 5 feet wide by 8 feet high. In front of the panel, a slanted top display table. Across the top of the panel, a quote by First Lady Claudia Ladybird Johnson, 1963-69. My children are the pulse and heartbeat of the White House. Beneath it, two photos. At top left, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy visits her daughter Caroline and two other students at a White House classroom in the third-floor solarium in 1963. Both of Caroline's parents visited her frequently. Other children in the White House had private tutors or attended local schools. 
To its right, a painting of two young boys having a pillow fight in the East Room in 1881. The sons of President James A. Garfield, 1881, ride large black tricycles with small front spoked wheels and a pair of larger rear wheels. This room is normally used for formal parties and receptions. Below and to the left, the daughter of President Benjamin Harrison, 1889-93, and her sister-in-law play with their three small children on the second floor. President and Mrs. Harrison had great affection for their grandchildren and insisted that they live at the White House. At center-right, President Barack Obama, since 2009, walks along the White House West Colonnade with his smiling daughters, Malia and Sasha, in 2009. Below, two handwritten pages containing sketches and two black-and-white photos. At left, one of the many picture letters with four sketches with captions handwritten by President Theodore Roosevelt, 1901-09, to his children. To the right, a photo of Roosevelt's young son playing with the young son of White House steward, Henry Pinckney. To the right, a design and notes for a treehouse designed by President Jimmy Carter, 1977-81, for daughter Amy. To the right, President Carter helps his daughter and grandson Jason down from the treehouse on the South Lawn. First families have also built swing sets and jungle gyms on the White House grounds. Below, a slanted-top display table, with, at its top, a quote attributed to President Harry S. Truman, 1945-53. If you want a friend in Washington, get a dog. On the display's left, a photo of the grandson of President Benjamin Harrison, 1889-93, sitting in a cart pulled by the family's pet goat, his whiskers, in front of the South Portico. To the right is a brown flipbook bound by three silver-colored rings containing multiple pages of photos of presidents and family members with household pets. They include President Zachary Taylor, 1849-50, and his horse, Old Whitey. The children of President Ulysses S. Grant, 1869-77, being pulled on a cart by two Shetland ponies, Reb and Billy Button. First Lady Grace Coolidge, 1923-29, with her pet raccoon, Rebecca. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933-45, with his Scotty, Fala. John Jr. and Caroline Kennedy and their pony, Macaroni. And President Lyndon B. Johnson, 1963-69, howling with his beagle, Yuki, in the Oval Office. Other flipbook pages include First Lady Barbara Bush, 1989-93, showing Jordan's King Hussein, the family's Springer Spaniel Millie, and her litter of puppies. President William J. Clinton, 1993-2001, with his cat Socks. And President Barack Obama, since 2009, and Bo, the family's Portuguese water dog. The My Children are the Pulse and Heartbeat of the White House, a narrow, freestanding display. When facing the No Place Like Home display, turn to face behind you, and this display is on the right. The Who ordered that display? Three and one half minutes. At the center of this six-foot diameter round table are three repeats of the question, Who ordered that? Around the edge are six touchable white china dinner plates, 12 inches in diameter, with reproductions of food, 
Each is labeled at the top in black letters and has a knob at the 7 o'clock position to turn the plate to reveal a caption underneath. The plate labeled fried chicken contains a brown-white biscuit, cut green asparagus, and two pieces of golden fried chicken. President Harry S. Truman, 1945-53 One evening, White House maitre d'hôtel Alonzo Fields received a last-minute call that 14 of the president's senior advisors needed dinner. With the rest of the staff taking the day off, Fields sprang into action and prepared fried chicken, one of the president's favorite foods, along with vegetables, biscuits, and dessert. Moving counterclockwise, the next plate, labeled jelly beans, contains a sealed clear plastic candy container filled with multicolored jelly beans. President Ronald Reagan, 1981-89 More than three tons of jelly beans arrived at the White House for President Reagan's inaugural festivities in 1981. Reagan ate jelly beans during cabinet meetings, in the Oval Office, and even on Air Force One. To the right, the plate is labeled cottage cheese and holds a bowl with a rounded scoop of white cottage cheese on a green lettuce leaf with three red strawberries to the side. First Lady Patricia Nixon, 1969-74 For her family's first night in the White House, Mrs. Nixon ordered four steak dinners and a bowl of cottage cheese. Since cottage cheese was not normally stocked in the White House kitchen, a staff member had to borrow a White House limousine to drive around Washington in search of it. To the right, the plate is labeled salted almonds and bears a small bowl of the brown nuts sprinkled with large grains of salt. President William H. Taft, 1909-13 Weighing more than 300 pounds, President Taft had perhaps the largest presidential appetite. Dinners typically involved multiple courses, including lobster stew, salmon, roast beef, cold tongue, and ham, and potato salad, followed by pudding, cake, fruit, and coffee. To the right, the plate is labeled rice pudding and holds a small bowl of this white dessert. President Ulysses S. Grant, 1869-77 A military man of simple tastes, President Grant brought an army quartermaster to run the White House kitchen but First Lady Julia Grant soon replaced him with Italian steward Valentino Mella. Mella considered plain rice pudding, the president's favorite dessert, too unsophisticated for the White House and experimented with more complicated versions. To the right, the final plate is labeled squirrel soup and bears a bowl of reddish-brown broth filled with vegetables and small pieces of meat. President James A. Garfield, 1881 After President Garfield was shot in 1881, doctors suggested that the president's favorite squirrel soup might revive his appetite. In the White House cookbook from 1894, steward Hugo Zeman recommended using three or four good-sized squirrels and declared the soup to be very good. The Who Ordered That Display When facing the My Children Are the Pulse and Heartbeat of the White House display, On the round table behind you is a plate with fried chicken. The pressures of daily life display, three minutes. The left two-thirds of this large glass display case contain objects, and the right third is a green panel with a color photo. At the left of the eight-foot-wide by eight-foot-high display case, a child's rocking chair, three feet high, made of yellow-brown wooden slats on a dark brown frame of bent wood. When First Lady Claudia Ladybird Johnson created the Children's Garden in 1969, 
A suite of outdoor furniture, including this rocking chair, was placed in the garden. To the right, a black bowling ball stamped White House with three finger holes designed for a woman's or child's hand. In front, a color photo of a bowling alley. In 1947, President Harry S. Truman, 1945-53, built the first White House bowling lanes in the West Wing basement. Next to the right, on a raised pedestal, a reddish-brown wood vintage radio, 13 inches wide by 9 inches high by 6 inches deep. Below a photo of the same style radio in a third-floor bedroom. In January 1941, the White House purchased Emerson radios for bedrooms on the second and third floors. Below and in front of the radio, a slender 18-inch tall light brown wooden club similar to a bowling pin. Below a photo of President Calvin Coolidge, 1923-29, to holding a club in each hand. White House exercise equipment included this government-issue Indian Club, modeled after one swung by wrestlers in India. Next to the right, a small pedestal, on which an upright, thin black rod supports an elaborate gold ring with intricate designs. Two light-colored oval stones are set into the sides of the ring. President Ulysses S. Grant received this gold, agate, and quartz ring as a souvenir of the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in 1869. The ring was made from surplus metal in the casting of the golden spike that was ceremonially driven into Promontory Summit, Utah Territory, on May 10, 1869. Next to the right, a light brown wooden side chair from the bedroom of President and Mrs. Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877-81. The frame of the maple chair has regularly spaced rings and segments simulating bamboo. The tied-on tufted seat cushion is white with light blue floral designs. On the right third of the display, a green panel three feet wide by six feet high. At the top, a color photo of President and Mrs. Ronald Reagan, 1981 to 89, smiling at one another as they sit on upholstered chairs and eat dinner on tray tables in the second floor study in 1981. During their few years in the White House, first families have the same life experiences as families living anywhere else. Presidents exercise, play games, garden, and watch TV or listen to the radio, especially when these activities offer them precious time alone with their families. The Pressures of Daily Life Display Case When facing the My Children display, to the left, beyond the Who Ordered That tabletop display. The White House Usher display, three and one quarter minutes. In this six-and-one-half-foot-wide by eight-foot-tall glass display case is a large wooden desk. On the background behind the desk, a quote by James Bernard J.B. West, White House Chief Usher from 1957 to 69. My loyalty was not to any one president, but rather to the presidency and to the institution that is the White House. This large, dark brown desk with a polished surface was used in the White House Usher's office adjacent to the entrance hall from 1902 to 1948. The desk is 48 inches wide and 45 inches high at the back. Across the entire width is a flat writing surface, 18 inches deep, with sides that curve up to the back. Behind the writing surface are compartments and numerous small drawers with round metal pulls. In the front, to either side of the central knee hole, are drawers with metal handles. In front of the glass display case stands a slanted-top display table. At the center, under the title, 
the White House usher. In the modern White House, the chief usher takes on the vital role of managing the historic home for the first family, directing the resident staff, responding to the needs of each first family, and helping to ensure the family's privacy. The chief usher is also responsible for staging official functions, meetings, and events taking place at the White House. At the center are two photos. On the left is William Slade, a free African American who served President Abraham Lincoln 1861 to 65 as both messenger and friend. In 1866, President Andrew Johnson 1865 to 69 made Slade the first official White House steward in charge of the residence's domestic staff. This role later evolved into that of chief usher. To the right, under the title "The Usher's Desk." A 1928 photo of the desk in the usher's office on the first floor adjacent to the entrance hall. This desk had an intercom system, allowing the White House usher to contact staff in various parts of the building. President Woodrow Wilson sat at this desk when he signed a document declaring war on Germany on April 6, 1917. At either end of the slanted top display table, in front of the display case. You may pick up a sound stick and press a button to hear first-hand accounts about working in the White House. At both ends, you may choose from the same set of six buttons in three columns of two to activate the recordings. The left set of buttons also has print and braille numbers to the left of each button. In the left column above, Chief Usher Gary Walters, 1970 to 2007. Below, Executive Chef Henry Haller. 1966 to 87. In the center column above, Assistant Usher Nancy Mitchell, 1981 to 2006. Below, Maitre D Eugene Allen, 1952 to 86. In the right column above, Chief Electrician William Kleiber, 1963 to 2004. Below, Executive Housekeeper Christine Limerick, 1979 to 2007. Above the buttons, a video monitor displays the captions of the chosen recording. The serving the first family display introduction. In this area, there are two displays and one video. When facing the video monitor, the serving the first family display is to the left. Facing the short and narrow green wall with the video monitor, the preserving the White House display is to the right. Between the two displays are two white benches and a video monitor, which continuously shows the White House's home three-minute silent video. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by pressing the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The serving the first family display, four and three quarters minutes. This display has two white panels at the left and right, each five and one half feet wide by six feet high. Between them, in a narrow glass display case, an oval silver soup tureen. On the top left panel, a quote by Irwin Ike Hoover, electrician and chief usher, 1891 to 1933. There is a loyalty born of time and experience. Administrations change from one political faith to another, but these old fellows go on serving faithfully. On the left panel, titled "Serving the First Family," 
For many years, each first family brought their own servants to the White House. However, the growing burden of presidential responsibilities and rising cost of maintaining the executive residence highlighted the need for a permanent White House staff. Today, the staff works behind the scenes to support the White House's official functions while also serving the first family. On the top right, five staff members gather around President and Mrs. Jimmy Carter, 1977-81, and their young daughter Amy with a surprise gift in celebration of the Carter's 31st wedding anniversary. To the left, a photo of an African-American man in a long white apron. Jerry Smith served as butler, cook, doorman, and footman for more than 30 years beginning in the late 1860s. At the bottom right, a photo of six men posing casually in front of the North Portico doorway in the 1890s. At the time, doormen greeted everyone arriving at the residence and also supervised maids and footmen. Across the bottom of both panels in light gold words, a list of numerous tasks which include clean the windows, move the furniture, light the fire, shovel the snow, greet the guests, and escort the first lady. Between the left and right panels, a glass display case visible from both sides. Inside, on a red square pedestal, is an oval silver soup tureen purchased by President James Monroe, 1817-25. The tureen is 18 inches across, and, with its cover, 15 inches high. It rests on an engraved oval tray and has large curving handles to each side. Around the sides, repeating raised designs of musicians and mythical griffins. As the finial, an American eagle clutches arrows and an olive branch. On the top of the right panel, five images include four photos. At the top, a quote from Nancy Mitchell, assistant usher from 1981, to 2006. It's just amazing to see the care that they put in, from housemen sweeping the floor to the chef getting the menu and submitting it to the first lady and then making sure that every item on the plate looks just perfect. The title, A Changing Workforce. As the nation became more diverse, so did the White House staff. President Thomas Jefferson, 1801-09, employed three Frenchmen and five Irishmen and John Quincy Adams, 1825-29, hired a Belgian valet. Before 1860, Southern presidents also had enslaved workers, who worked alongside free African Americans and European-born servants. In 1909, President William H. Taft, 1909-13, hired the first Filipino staff members, starting a tradition that continued throughout the 20th century. Today, a diverse staff from many backgrounds keeps the executive residence running smoothly. At the left, a man in a dark suit supervises five women in maids' uniforms as they arrange silverware on counters on both sides of a narrow room. To the right, a photo of nine African-American men and women, all wearing suits or long dresses. Taken in 1877, this is the earliest known posed photo of White House workers. At the center left, a completed federal census form. Down the left column, handwritten names. Not all White House workers came voluntarily. The 1830 census recorded 14 enslaved African Americans living in the White House during Andrew Jackson's presidency, 1829-37. At bottom left, a worker stoops to roll up the carpet in the blue room. 
To prepare for thousands of visitors each week, the staff has to roll up the carpets, put down the mats on the floor, and put out the ropes and stanchions. At bottom right, a woman in a white apron and tall chef's hat holds a spoon above a large silver colored pot on a stove. Christetta Comerford is the first female White House executive chef. Born in the Philippines, she came to the United States in 1985, started working at the White House in 1995, and became executive chef in 2005. The Serving the First Family Display. To the left, when you are facing the White House's home video monitor. The White House Collection Display, three minutes. This glass display case, 11 feet wide by 8 feet high, holds objects from the White House Collection. At the left, a large round china bowl, 17 inches in diameter and 9 inches high. Made for First Lady Mary Lincoln, 1861 to 65, this state china punch bowl. Is white with a round purple base and a wide purple band around the upper rim, both trimmed with gold colored bands. Ornate gold colored repeating designs are on the interior and exterior. The U.S. coat of arms, an eagle with its wings spread above a shield in the design of an American flag, is on the outside of the bowl. To the right on a pedestal, a silver plated wine bottle holder and a semicircular crumb tray. The holder is in the shape of a wine bottle with raised vines on the side and bottom third and a curved handle. To the right, on a lower pedestal, a clear plastic sheet of nine round candy molds with the presidential seal, each two inches in diameter. In front, on a lower pedestal, a copper skillet with a long handle. In 1910, the White House kitchen staff consisted of one cook and two helpers. They may have used this skillet to prepare everything from parsnip fritters to prune pudding. Next to the right is a portable sewing machine, 20 inches wide, 10 inches deep, and 12 inches high, resting on a brown wooden base. It is black with silver colored knobs and wheels. Seamstress Lillian Rogers Parks used this Kenmore sewing machine to make blackout curtains for the White House windows during World War II. Parks served the White House for 30 years. At the left, a silver centerpiece, three and one half feet long, two feet wide, and three feet high, is a sailboat resembling a gravy boat, which narrows at the front to a curling figurehead. A single mast in the center holds a billowing square sail. At the top of the mast, a bushy tailed squirrel stands on its hind legs. Lines run from the bottom of the sail to the back of the boat, where they are held by a seated Native American man. His long hair is decorated with feathers. In his extended right hand is a short sword. In his left, a round shield. A herringbone pattern is engraved on the side of the boat, which rests on a mirrored tray bordered by water lilies and other marsh plants. First Lady Julia Grant, 1869 77, acquired this silver centerpiece at the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition in 1876. The boat depicts the story of Hiawatha from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem. The White House Collection Display. To the right, when you are facing the White House's home video monitor. The White House's home video description. This video, which plays continuously, shows scenes of dozens of presidential families living in the White House 
from 1865 to 2011. To hear the video description, press the circular button to join the description in progress. When you are ready to leave the video description and return to the Exhibit Audio menu, press any of the crescent buttons, or you may simply move to another display in another location. The White House's Home Video Description, which accompanies the three-minute silent The White House's Home Video between the Serving the First Family and the Preserving White House History displays. The stage and ceremony display introduction. In this area, there are two displays, both titled Stage and Ceremony, one video and four tactile objects. The first stage and ceremony display has a sepia background and a center video monitor, which continuously shows the stage and ceremony three-minute video. Facing the video monitor, the second stage and ceremony display, with a glass display case between two red panels, is behind you. Below the right side of the second stage and ceremony display are a tactile stateroom map and touchable state floor objects. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area, then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The first stage and ceremony display, three and one half minutes. The entire background is filled with a sepia tone engraving, 13 feet wide by six feet high, of President Abraham Lincoln receiving Prince Napoleon of France in 1861. Well-dressed men and women in mid-19th century clothing mill about on the south portico and nearby grounds. On the panel are four photos, two each on the left and right. At top left, President Richard M. Nixon, 1969-74, to shakes hands with entertainer Elvis Presley in the Oval Office in 1970. President and Mrs. Barack Obama, since 2009, dance while the band Earth, Wind, and Fire performs at the Governor's Dinner in the East Room in 2009. On the top right, a crowd on the South Lawn watches Olympic gold medalist Peggy Fleming skate on an elevated ice rink at a holiday party hosted by President and Mrs. Jimmy Carter, 1977-81, in 1980. Below, President George W. Bush, 2001-09, and Mexican President Vicente Fox during a White House arrival ceremony on the South Lawn in 2001. In the center, a monitor, which continuously shows stage and ceremony, a three-minute video. On the bottom of the display, a timeline containing anecdotes, some humorous. Five are on the left and five are on the right, most with small related images. The timeline chronicles an 1837 public open house by President Andrew Jackson, 1829-37, which left White House rugs reeking of cheese for weeks. An 1839 cartoon lampooning President Martin Van Buren 1837-41, alleging lavish entertainment expenses. An 1841 program for the first White House funeral after President William Henry Harrison, 1841, died one month after taking office. President John Tyler, 1841-45, thus became the first vice president to take office upon a predecessor's death. 
Last on the left side of the panel, President Ulysses S. Grant, 1869-77, hosted the first state dinner in 1874 for a ruling monarch upon the visit of King David Kalakaua of the Hawaiian Islands. On the bottom right, at the left, an 1877 magazine illustration of a crowd of men and women in late 19th century clothing. As a nod to the temperance movement, President and Mrs. Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877-81, stopped serving alcohol at White House dinners. This earned First Lady Lucy Hayes the nickname Lemonade Lucy. Next, President and Mrs. Herbert Hoover, 1929-33, rarely dined alone and often added last-minute guests. Once, after ordering lunch for four, they ended up inviting 40. White House kitchen staff had to raid the refrigerator to prepare a last-minute banquet. An entry for 1939 notes the visit of King George VI and Queen Elizabeth, who were the first reigning British monarchs to come to the White House. Before their arrival, their aides asked that ham sandwiches be available should the royal couple return after midnight and requested a very soft eider-down quilt at the foot of the bed. In 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson, 1963-69, held the first presidential cookout for retiring members of Congress on the West Terrace. Last, at the right, an orchestra performs in 1978, the first in-performance-at-the-White-House concert broadcast by the Public Broadcasting Service. The first stage and ceremony display has a sepia background and a video monitor at its center. Stage and Ceremony Video Description This continuously playing video shows scenes of dozens of public events and ceremonies at the White House from 1909 to 2013. To hear the video description, press the circular button to join the description in progress. When you are ready to leave the video description and return to the Exhibit Audio menu, press any of the crescent buttons or you may simply move to another display in another location. The Stage and Ceremony Video Description, which accompanies the three-minute video at the center of the first Stage and Ceremony Display. The second Stage and Ceremony Display, four and one-quarter minutes. This display has two red panels at the left and right, each five and one-half feet wide by six feet high. Between them, in a narrow glass display case, an ornate gilded armchair with red upholstery. In front of the right panel, a narrow table with a tactile map of the state floor of the White House and three touchable examples of White House decor. On the left panel, under the words, Stage and Ceremony, white text, and five images. Some of the country's greatest entertainers perform at the White House. National heroes are often received here. Each president and first lady symbolizes American hospitality when welcoming world leaders. Whether the occasion is a momentous bill signing, an elaborate dinner for foreign dignitaries, or the annual children's Easter egg roll, the White House provides a stage for moments of national celebration and ceremony. At the top. After presenting him with the Medal of Honor, President Barack Obama, since 2009, Praise with U.S. Army Staff Sergeant Salvatore Junta in the East Room, 2010. Junta was the first living service member since the Vietnam War to receive the nation's highest award for military valor.
Below, children scramble for Easter eggs on the South Lawn in 1929. The annual Easter egg roll started in 1878 and is the largest public event on the White House grounds. Below, as part of the War on Poverty, President Lyndon B. Johnson, 1963-69, signs the Economic Opportunity Act in the Rose Garden, 1964. Below and to the left. President and Mrs. John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, and their guests listen to renowned cellist Pablo Casals during an East Room concert, 1961. Casals had last visited the White House in 1904 when he played for President Theodore Roosevelt, 1901-09. Below. During Japan's first diplomatic mission to Washington, President James Buchanan, 1857-61, receives the Japanese envoys at an East Room reception in 1860. Between the panels, in a glass display case, an elegant armchair, the cushioned seat, back, and upper arms, are upholstered in bright red, bordered with gilded leaf designs. The frame and legs are gilded and carved with repeating designs. This gilded beechwood armchair, made by French cabinet maker Pierre-Antoine Belanger and originally upholstered in crimson, was part of a 53-piece furniture suite ordered in 1817 for the Oval Room, today's Blue Room, by President James Monroe, 1817-25. to On the right panel, white text and five photos. The words, the staterooms. Located on the first floor, the distinctive staterooms play an important role in official entertaining. Bill signings and performances often take place in the East Room. The Red Room and Green Room provide settings for smaller ceremonies and private functions. Receptions are often hosted in the Blue Room, while larger banquets are frequently served in the state dining room. Outdoors, ceremonies for visiting dignitaries, cookouts, and music festivals often take place on the South Lawn. Atop, the Marine Band in Red Jackets plays in the entrance hall during the 1988 state visit of British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. Below, President and Mrs. Jimmy Carter, 1977-81, sit in the Blue Room in 1978 with Egyptian President Anwar al-Sadat, his wife, and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin shortly before the Camp David Accords signing ceremony. To the left, an overhead view of people seated at round tables in the state dining room. President and Mrs. Ronald Reagan, 1981-89, host a dinner for Soviet General Secretary and Mrs. Mikhail Gorbachev in the state dining room in 1987. Below, a 2009 overhead view of President Barack Obama since 2009, and Indian Prime Minister Manmohan Singh walking along the gold-bordered red carpet in the Cross Hall. At bottom right, a military honor guard stands at attention over the casket of President Warren G. Harding, 1921-23, in the East Room in August 1923. Six other presidents who died in office have also lain in state in this room. The second stage and ceremony display. Behind you when you face the video monitor. The tactile stateroom map and touchable stateroom objects. Two and three quarters minutes. At the left of this tabletop display is a tactile map of the rooms of the state floor and below that the map's legend. If you would like to pause in order to explore the map before starting the description, 
Press the square button now. Press it again when you are ready to hear the description. Against an ivory-colored background, dark brown printed text, raised numbers, and raised outlines define the legend and map. The legend is labeled with raised numbers, printed text, and braille for the four spaces that are only large enough to identify with numbers. Other spaces are fully labeled on the map. In numerical order, the rooms on the legend are 1. Red Room 2. Blue Room 3. Green Room 4. South Portico At the lower right corner, the compass rose points to the top of the map as north. The rectangular state floor of the executive residence runs from left to right or west to east. At the top center of the map, outside the building, is the north portico, indicated by raised circles that represent columns. Below the north portico is the rectangular entrance hall, which is open to the long horizontal cross hall. At the lower left, or southwest corner, is the rectangular state dining room. To the right is the red room, number one. To the right, in the center of the south side of the residence, is the oval blue room, number two. Below this room, outside the building, is the curved south portico, number four, indicated by raised circles that represent columns. To the right of the blue room is the green room, number three. To the right or east is the rectangular east room, stretching the depth of the residence from north to south. To the right of the map and legend are three tactile objects from the state floor. First is a 6-inch by 7-inch sample of horsehair upholstery fabric once used on cross-hall chairs. The woven salmon-colored fabric is divided diagonally into small squares by raised stitching. In the center of each square is stitched a small flower. To the right is a dark, cast-bronze reproduction of the bison head that is carved on the state dining room mantel. Above the horned, triangular head is a row of decorative egg-shaped trim, and at the side of the head are folds of drapery. To the right is a shiny brass reproduction doorknob from the front doors at the north portico entry. The ribbed, lever-style knob is mounted on reddish-brown mahogany. The tactile stateroom map and state floor objects on a narrow tabletop under the right panel of the second stage and ceremony display. The host for the nation display introduction, one and one quarter minutes. In this area, there are two displays and a small freestanding display case with a flagpole finial. The small case is in the center of the floor between these two displays, eight feet toward the information desk. Facing the host for the nation display, the national stage display is behind you. Facing the national stage display, the host for the nation display is behind you. In the small case, the 18-inch tall finial sits 4 feet above the floor. A 12-inch tall eagle, its wings spread 20 inches, sits atop a 6-inch diameter sphere. In 1898, the White House flagpole was replaced by one topped with a patriotic eagle. The gilded copper flagpole, possibly the original, was damaged in 1993 and replaced with an exact replica. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. Mm -hmm.
The Host for the Nation display, 4 and 1 half minutes. This display has two white panels at left and right, each 5 and 1 half feet wide by 6 feet high. Between them, in a narrow glass display case, a place setting of china, glassware, and silverware. The words, Host for the Nation. Most people entertain friends and family in their homes. The President and First Lady also host world leaders on behalf of the entire nation. Each carefully planned state visit follows strict protocol governing everything from the order in which guests enter a room to where they sit at dinner. Following the tradition set by President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, the President usually greets guests with a stately arrival ceremony on the South Lawn. The visitors then attend receptions, formal dinners, and performances, which are frequently held on the state floor. These official visits play a vital role in strengthening America's ties to other countries. At the top of the left panel, a photo of President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, walking on the South Lawn with Bolivian President Victor Estensoro and a military officer in 1963. They pass U.S. Navy sailors standing at attention. To the right, First Lady Laura Bush, 2001-09, in a red formal dress, lights candles at a table in the state dining room before a 2001 state dinner honoring Mexican President Vicente Fox. Below, President and Mrs. Ronald Reagan, 1981-89, welcome Japanese Prime Minister Zenko Suzuki as he emerges from a black car under the North Portico. At the bottom, President Lyndon B. Johnson, 1963-69, examines a ceremonial sword presented to him by Mexican President Gustavo Diaz Ordaz in the second-floor yellow oval room. Between the panels, in a glass display case, a dinner place setting used during the state dinner for Queen Elizabeth II in celebration of the American Bicentennial in July 1976. In the center, a white china plate with a thin gold-colored edge. At the plate's center, the flying eagle shield, and around the rim, individual wildflowers. To the left of the plate, three gilded forks, and to the right, three knives with pearl handles. Three clear stemware glasses are above the knives. To the left, a menu on a square white card. Above, a photo of President Ford, 1974-77, and the Queen exchanging a toast. On the right panel are a print and four photos. The words, White House State Dinners. President Ulysses S. Grant, 1869-77, held the first state dinner for a ruling monarch in 1874. Since then, these elaborate events have become a key part of American diplomacy. At top, a painting of President Theodore Roosevelt, 1901-09, toasting Prince Henry of Prussia at a 1902 state dinner. Below on the left, President and Mrs. Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1953-61, in formal clothing, pose with King Frederick and Queen Ingrid of Denmark in the Blue Room. To the right, a photo of comedian Bob Hope entertaining President and Mrs. Gerald R. Ford, 1974-77, Queen Elizabeth II, Prince Philip, and many guests in the East Room following a state dinner in 1976. Below, President Ford dances with the Queen in the state dining room. In the bottom photo, an overhead view of President and Mrs. George Bush, 1989-93, to 
escorting Russian President and Mrs. Boris Yeltsin down the red-carpeted grand staircase in 1992. On the bottom of the panel, a wide, deep red stripe with the words, Did You Know? President Thomas Jefferson, 1801-09, was the first president to welcome guests with a handshake and not a bow. The Marine Band first played Hail to the Chief for President John Tyler, 1841-45. to in 1860, President James Buchanan, 1857-61, gave up his bedroom for the visiting Prince of Wales, the first visit to the United States by an heir to the British throne. The president slept on a sofa. The last item notes that state dinners, which were originally held to honor members of Congress and the Supreme Court, evolved into the modern meaning, a dinner honoring a visiting head of state. The Host for the Nation Display Facing this display, the National Stage Display is behind you. The National Stage Display, 5 minutes. This display has two white panels at the left and right, each 5 and 1 half feet wide by 6 feet high. Between them, in a narrow glass display case, an oval silver soup tureen. On the left panel, under the words, The National Stage. Presidents and First Ladies entertain guests in many different ways, depending on their personal tastes and current styles. Known for her easy hospitality, First Lady Dolly Madison, 1809-17, held informal weekly receptions, which sometimes overflowed into the gardens. First Lady Julia Grant, 1869-77, made the White House the center of Washington social life with celebrated meals that lasted for hours. Despite the national ban on alcohol during Prohibition, President Warren G. Harding, 1921-23, often served cocktails to his private guests. Observers joked that the White House liquor came from the illegal shipments seized by government agents. At the top is a print of the south front of the White House, its grounds filled with men and women. President Andrew Jackson's 1829-37 first inaugural party in 1829 turned into a riot when large crowds gathered at the White House. The celebrating mob smashed China and broke furniture. To avoid the chaos, President Jackson fled to a nearby hotel. To the right, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, 1933-45, is surrounded by soldiers watching a performance on the South Lawn in 1942. Below and left, an engraving of a crowd gathered at the North Portico to attend an evening reception held by President Franklin Pierce, 1853-57. The words, Music and Arts. Presidents have often used the White House to showcase American artists and musicians, beginning with the U.S. Marine Band's performance at a public reception held by President John Adams, 1797-1801, on New Year's Day in 1801. Since then, famous artists from pianist Sergei Rachmaninoff to singer Frank Sinatra have performed there. Presidents and their guests have also enjoyed ballet, opera, and Broadway musicals. Below, a photo of elaborately dressed Native American men and women demonstrating a traditional dance in the East Room in 1965. To its right, the rock band Los Lobos performs at night on the South Lawn in a celebration of Hispanic musical heritage in 2009. Between the left and right panels, a glass display case visible from both sides. 
Inside, on a red square pedestal, is a silver terrine. The terrine is 18 inches across and with its cover 15 inches high. It rests on an engraved oval tray and has large curving handles to each side. Around the sides, repeating raised designs of musicians and mythical griffins. As the finial, an American eagle clutches arrows and olive branches. This silver terrine, purchased by President James Monroe, 1817-25, is one of many furnishings that have contributed to the elegance of the White House as a stage for presidential activities. The historic terrine has long been used to ornament dining tables and sideboards. On the right panel, the words, Honored Guests. As American society and democratic ideals have changed, so has the White House guest list. In 1901, President Theodore Roosevelt, 1901-09, was criticized when he asked noted African-American author and educator Booker T. Washington to dinner. Other famous visitors have ranged from author Charles Dickens to entertainer Elvis Presley. At the top right, a sepia engraving of President Andrew Johnson, 1865-69, receiving an American Indian delegation around 1867. American Indian leaders first came to the White House to visit President Thomas Jefferson, 1801-09, in 1805. To the left, President Richard M. Nixon, 1969-74, stands with jazz pianist Duke Ellington in front of a piano in 1969. After a dinner for Ellington's 70th birthday, Nixon presented Ellington with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Below, President Barack Obama, since 2009, talks to Kennedy Center honorees, actor Robert De Niro, and singer Bruce Springsteen in the Blue Room in 2009. Since 1978, the Kennedy Center's Lifetime Achievement Awards have honored some of the country's most celebrated performing artists. In other photos, President Herbert Hoover, 1929-33, presents aviator Amelia Earhart, with the National Geographic Society gold medal in 1932. President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, talks with African-American track star Wilma Rudolph in 1961. President Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1953-61, stands between baseball pioneer Jackie Robinson and movie actor Joe E. Brown in 1957. President Ronald Reagan, 1981-89, greets Girl Scouts from El Cajon, California, in the West Garden Room in 1983. And President George W. Bush, 2001-09, and Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld greet members of the military in the East Room in 2001. The National Stage Display Facing this display, the host for the nation display is behind you. The House of the Nation display introduction, one and one quarter minutes. In this area, there are five audio menu choices. The first is the House of the Nation display, which faces the north side of the 16-foot-long model of the White House. The second is an overview of the north front of the 16-foot model of the White House. The third is the shelf of displays and interactive computer monitors surrounding the 16-foot model. The fourth is the pull-out drawer of tactile maps under each of the eight interactive computer monitors that surround the 16-foot model. The fifth choice is to learn how to operate 
be interactive computer monitors with audio description. When you have listened to as many of the five choices in this area as you wish, the next nearby display case, a changing landscape, is at a right angle to the right if you are facing the House of the Nation display case. Audio description will begin automatically when you reach that area. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area, then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The House of the Nation Display, 5 and one half minutes. This display with a white background, 12 feet wide by 6 feet high, includes at the left two-thirds a panel with text and five images of the White House exterior and interior. On the right third of the display, a glass display case with several historical items. Across the panel's top, a quote by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933-45. I never forget that I live in a house owned by all the American people. To the left, the words, House of the Nation. After Washington, D.C. became the site for the nation's new capital city in 1790, leaders had to decide, where would the president live? President George Washington, 1789-97, selected the location for the presidential residence and, after reviewing a number of competing proposals, chose Irish-born James Hoban as the architect and builder. Hundreds of workers, including enslaved African Americans, Scottish stonecutters, immigrant laborers, and local craftsmen, labored on the building for eight years. In 1800, President John Adams, 1797-1801, became the first president to occupy the new White House. On the top left, a cracked and stained sepia architectural drawing of the original James Hoban design showing the North Front, 1792. Below at the center, a painting of the White House as seen from the Northwest. The areas above most windows are blackened by smoke. During the War of 1812, British troops burned the White House in August 1814. The charred ruins became a symbol of defeat. However, General Andrew Jackson's final victory over British forces at the Battle of New Orleans in 1815 restored national pride. Illustrating the resilience of the American people, Hoban set out to rebuild the residence, completing the work in 1817. Above and to the right, a 1902 photograph of a square, white, one-story building with the south front of the executive residence in the background. By the late 1800s, the second floor of the White House no longer provided adequate office space for the president and his staff. Congress approved construction of the temporary office building, later known as the West Wing. To the right, the gutted White House interior. Steel beams crisscross the open space and intersect the still-standing exterior walls at all levels. In the dirt below ground level, a bulldozer and more than a dozen standing people are dwarfed by the large open space. By the late 1940s, the building had become structurally unsafe and a potential fire trap. An extensive renovation project added steel beams and a concrete foundation. Finished in 1952, the renovated White House included a modern heating and cooling system. Across the bottom, a tan band with the words, Unbuilt Wings and Proposed Expansions. On it are two drawings and a photo of a plaster model of unrealized proposals 
to change the White House significantly to address space, aesthetic, and security issues. President Chester A. Arthur, 1881-85, wanted to tear down the White House and rebuild it completely. First Lady Caroline Harrison, 1889-92, worked with engineers to create a proposed expansion that included large wings for new offices and an art gallery. President William McKinley, 1897-1901, viewed a plaster model of a vastly enlarged White House. On the right of the display, a glass case. Inside, a small brown wooden desk, 29 inches wide, 39 inches high, and 18 inches deep. The sides of the desk gradually curve upward to join the straight back, 7 inches above the writing surface. The square legs are straight, tapering toward the bottom. On the front, two drawers with round, brass-colored pulls. According to family tradition, White House architect James Hoban built this mahogany desk from wood left over from the original White House construction. To the right is an oval portrait of Hoban. Above it, a document with a list of names written on yellowed paper. African Americans, enslaved and free, helped construct the White House. This 1795 payroll list includes enslaved carpenters hired by the government from their slaveholders. The slaveholders received the compensation for the work done by the carpenters. Above the desk, at the left, a shelf holds a gold-colored mantle clock, 7 inches wide by 10 inches high. The clock rests on a platform with raised designs, and a gilded rectangular case holds the white round clock face. On the front of the case are raised words, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. On top of the case, an eagle stands on a small globe, its wings spread, in its right talon a branch with leaves, in its left talon arrows, to the right a statuette of George Washington in military uniform, his outstretched right hand holding a rolled-up scroll. With works designed by Louis Mallet, this 1816 French gilded bronze clock features George Washington in his general's uniform. On the shelf to the right, a white china dinner plate with a broad gold-colored rim covered with repeating designs. In the center of the plate, a gold-colored image of the north front of the White House. The William J. Clinton State China Service commemorates the 200th anniversary of the White House. The rim design is based on state dining room architectural elements. The House of the Nation Display faces the north front of the 16-foot-long model of the White House. The north front of the 16-foot White House model, two and one-quarter minutes. Atop a platform four feet above the floor, its long side running east to west, is a 16-foot-long model of the White House. The model is intended to be viewed and not touched. This all-white model is at a scale of one inch equals four feet, or one foot equals 48 feet. The model is surrounded by a slanted display shelf, which contains displays and interactive computer monitors. Altogether, the model and shelf occupy 19 feet from left to right and 10 feet from front to back. You are looking at the north front of the White House. Throughout its history, the house and surrounding grounds have undergone many changes. Yet, the White House has long been recognizable around the world as the home of the President of the United States. The stately North Portico, 
with its large hanging lantern, is often used as a backdrop for televised news reports covering American political events. This model shows the White House as it appears today. The grounds surrounding the White House are indicated by a rough surface, while walks are shown by narrow, smooth surfaces, and driveways are designated with wide, smooth surfaces. Starting at the center of the South Front, the White House includes the rectangular, four-floor executive residence, 170 feet wide from east to west and 85 feet deep from north to south. Its curved south portico, added by architect James Hoban in 1824, projects 25 feet. The rectangular north portico, which extends 40 feet, includes a covered entrance through which a vehicle could pass. At the center of the top floor is the octagonal solarium that extends over most of the south portico's roof. To the left or east of the executive residence, attached at the ground floor, are the one-story east terrace and the two-story east wing. On its east front, the east wing has a narrow, covered, one-story entrance with columns through which a vehicle could pass. To the right, or the west of the executive residence, are the one-story L-shaped west terrace and the square three-story west wing. On the north front of the west wing is a narrow, covered entrance with four columns through which a vehicle could pass. The north front of the 16-foot White House model, which you face when your back is to the House of the Nation display case. The interactive computer monitors and displays on the north front of the 16-foot White House model. Five and one-quarter minutes. Press the square button at any time to pause this description and then press it again to resume. Surrounding the raised model platform is a 15-inch deep slanted shelf its front edge two and one-half feet above the floor. There are eight fully audio-described interactive computer monitors on the shelf around the large model, three on the north and south long sides, and one each on the short east and west sides. The monitors allow users to study the exterior of the White House at five different periods. They also provide a timeline of 100 milestones in White House history. Plus, you may visit 12 rooms and three areas of the grounds, including historic views of these settings and highlighted objects in each location. Near the left end of this side of the shelf is a single interactive computer monitor, and near the right end are two additional monitors. At the center of the shelf is a simple 20-inch by 7-inch model that shows a tactile silhouette that lays out the three-dimensional footprint of the present-day White House. Its orientation matches the 16-foot model, with the north side and north portico facing you and the south side and south portico facing away from you. The executive residence is in the center, with the east terrace and east wing to the left, and the west terrace and west wing to the right. To the left of the simple model is a hand-tented 1901 photo of the north lawn. In the photo, to the right, extends the west terrace, topped by a conservatory or sun parlor with a white roof and framework and glass windows. The photo's foreground is covered by a green lawn and at its center, a round, pool-like fountain with low sprays and plants. Around the fountain are four planting beds of green plants and rusty red flowers. Set back from Pennsylvania Avenue, the North Lawn is currently planted with shade trees, boxwoods, and flowers. 
It previously featured an ornamental Victorian garden. The circular fountain, added for President Ulysses S. Grant, 1869-77, replaced a bronze statue of President Thomas Jefferson, 1801-09. At the far left end of the shelf, a sepia-toned photo. Taken from the east, looking toward the exposed structure of the White House third floor under construction. In 1927, the White House attic was raised into a full third floor to provide the first family with more room. At the request of First Lady Grace Coolidge, 1923-29, the new floor included a sun parlor, a predecessor to today's solarium. Move around the corner to the left short side of the shelf, where, from left to right, are samples of the stone exterior, photos of the north portico, and a computer monitor. At the left are two small side-by-side samples of the stone exterior of the White House, the unpainted sample to the left and the white-painted sample to the right. When workers repainted the White House exterior in 2004, they used 570 gallons of paint. To the right are photos of the North Portico stripped of paint in 1984 and painted in 1999. Once the principal entrance for the first family and the public, The North Portico now serves primarily as a ceremonial entrance for presidents and honored guests. Built in 1829-30, the imposing feature dominates the north side of the building. The interactive computer monitors and displays surrounding the north front of the 16-foot White House model, which you face when your back is to the House of the Nation display case. A changing landscape display introduction, one minute. In this area, there are three displays, a tactile map of President's Park, the changing landscape display case with illustrations and artifacts, and a slanted top display table with small tactile reproductions of four President's Park statues. The tactile President's Park map is on a three-foot square tabletop which you face when the changing landscape display case is to your right. The changing landscape display case is in front of you when the tactile President's Park map is on your left. The President's Park tactile statues display is on a slanted display surface in front of the right three-quarters of the changing landscape display case. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The Tactile President's Park Map, 3 and 3 quarters minutes. If you would like to pause in order to explore the map before starting the description, press the square button now. Press it again when you are ready to hear the description. The legend is at the left third of the tabletop, and the map fills the right two-thirds. Against an ivory-colored background, dark brown raised letters, printed text, and braille label the legend. On the bronze map, labeled with raised and brailled numbers, we'll first locate the major features from top to bottom, north to south, and then we'll return to the top to identify the statues and other points of interest from north to south. You may move to the right side of the map if that will make it easier to reach the top of the map. Grounds are indicated by a rough texture, walks by narrow smooth surfaces, and driveways with wide smooth surfaces. Buildings are shown as raised surfaces, mostly rectangular, 
and statues and other tributes are presented as raised domes. At the top is the rectangular Lafayette Park, with intersecting walkways and the Jackson statue, number one, at its center. Below this, crossing the map from left to right, west to east, Pennsylvania Avenue separates Lafayette Park from the north grounds of the White House. Below, a circular drive connects Pennsylvania Avenue to the north portico of the White House, number six. Moving lower on the map, south of the White House, are the south grounds, also crossed by curving drives. And lower still, at the bottom of the map, is the large open park of the Ellipse. To locate the statues and other points of interest from north to south, return to Lafayette Park at the top of the map. At Lafayette Park's center, number one is the Jackson statue. Moving counterclockwise, at the park's lower right corner, number two is the Lafayette statue. At the upper right corner, number three is the Kosciusko statue. At the park's upper left corner, number four is the von Steuben statue. And at the lower right corner, number five, is the Rochambeau statue. Below Lafayette Park, south of Pennsylvania Avenue, number six is the White House. Below on the south grounds, at the left or west, is number seven, the First Division Monument. In a corresponding position at the right or east part of the south grounds, number eight is the Sherman statue. Below this, number nine is the Visitor Pavilion. To its left, near the north edge of the ellipse, is number 10, the National Christmas Tree. The ellipse continues almost to the bottom of the map, and to its right is number 11, the Boy Scout Commemorative Tribute. Just outside the lower left or southwest corner of the ellipse, number 12 is the Second Division Memorial. To follow the earlier suggestion to understand the White House exterior, continue to listen for directions to go to the six-foot tactile model of the White House. To make another choice in this area, you will return to the audio menus when this segment ends, or you may move to another exhibit where audio description will begin automatically. To go to the tactile six-foot model of the White House, while facing the south or bottom edge of the President's Park map, Turn around and move forward. Then, just after passing the short end of the 16-foot-long White House model on the right, turn right and move forward. Turn to the left and move ahead for the 6-foot tactile model of the White House. The Tactile President's Park Map On a 3-foot square tabletop, which you face when the changing landscape display case is to your right. The changing landscape display, three and one half minutes. This glass display case, eight feet wide by eight feet high, has on the left half a white panel, text, and three color illustrations of the early White House. On the right half, a large modern photo looking north from the north portico. On the left half, the words, a changing landscape. In 1791, Pierre-Charles L'Enfant designed a new capital city along the Potomac River. When they arrived in 1800, President and Mrs. John Adams, 1797-1801, found a village of a few hundred houses surrounding unfinished government buildings. As the capital slowly grew during the 19th century, a series of proposals refined L'Enfant's original design while retaining his vision of the city as a symbol of governmental power. Under the 1901-02 Macmillan Plan, Washington truly became L'Enfant's monumental city.
The plan called for reshaping the city's landscape by reclaiming parkland, erecting monuments, and creating vistas around the White House and Capitol. At top left, a watercolor from about 1825. This watercolor of the White House from the southwest shows President Thomas Jefferson's 1801-09 stone wall, workers' cottages, an orchard, and a vegetable garden. To the right, a large section from the 1795 color map of L'Enfant's plan. At the center is the White House, labeled on the map as the President's House. Radiating outward at various angles are wide avenues named for states, with rectangular and circular spaces marking their intersections. Smaller streets run north to south and east to west in a grid. Along the avenues and streets, small rectangles with numbers represent structures. At the lower left, the Blue Potomac River runs diagonally just below the White House grounds. Below an 1898 color engraving, an aerial view of the North Portico and North Lawn surrounded by buildings. A broad Pennsylvania Avenue borders the North Lawn. On the street march multiple formations of soldiers serving during the Spanish-American War. Dominating the foreground is a large gray building with multiple stories. The State War and Navy Building was later renamed the Dwight D. Eisenhower Executive Office Building. On the right half of the panel, a color photo, three and one half feet wide and five feet high, taken through window panes behind the north portico. In the foreground, large white columns topped by elaborately carved capitals. Beyond is the north lawn, its round fountain's pool ringed by red flowers. Across Pennsylvania Avenue in the distance, Lafayette Park with trees, walkways, and red flowers bordering a rectangular lawn. To either side, large buildings. In front of the lower left side of the display, a plexiglass box holds a stereoscope for viewing pictures. On a wooden handle is an oval box shaped to be held to one's face. In the back of the box are two square lenses. Several inches behind the viewing box, a rectangular holder on a clip. To the right of the device, a sepia-toned postcard-sized card. On it, two side-by-side -side photos of the same scene. The Lafayette Park statue of General Andrew Jackson, waving his hat, sitting on a horse, rearing up on its hind legs. Stereoscopes were popular from the 1860s to the early 1900s. When viewers look through the lenses, the two pictures of the same scene, viewed from slightly different perspectives, merge into a three-dimensional image. The Changing Landscape Display In front of you when the Tactile President's Park map is behind you. President's Park Tactile Statues Display, three and one-half minutes. If you would like to pause in order to explore the small tactile reproductions of the statues before starting the description, press the square button now. Press it again when you are ready to hear the description. You may use the square button to pause and resume the description at any time. President's Park is home to 12 statues and memorials commemorating important people and events in United States history. Across the top of this slanted display surface, are four pairs of photos and six-inch square bronze plaques, which provide three-dimensional representations of four statues in President's Park. Below each pair is a flip-up panel with a question and the answer underneath. At the left side, a photo and tactile representation 
of the First Division Monument, a tall column topped by a gold-colored statue. On top of a sphere stands a helmeted, winged female figure, arms raised and outstretched. Her right arm holds a flagstaff with a swirling banner. On the flip panel, Which memorial was modeled after the battle monument at the United States Military Academy at West Point? Erected in 1924 to commemorate the service of the U.S. Army's 1st Division in World War I, the monument was expanded later to honor the division's service in subsequent military conflicts. Second from the left, a photo and tactile representation of a statue of General Andrew Jackson, mounted on a rearing horse and raising his hat in his right hand. On the flip panel, Which statue had a specially trained horse for its model? The sculptor had trouble portraying Jackson's horse rearing up on its hind legs, so he trained a real horse to model this action for him. Third from the left, a photo and tactile representation of a statue of a man in a Revolutionary War uniform, a cape draped over his left arm, while his left hand rests on the hilt of his sword. He stands atop a pedestal, at the left side of which is a man in a military uniform. On the front, a barefoot woman wrapped in a skirt-like garment raises a hand toward a rounded oval medallion, topped by shell-like scallops. To the right of the pedestal, another man in a military uniform. On the flip panel, Which statues in Lafayette Park commemorate foreign nationals who aided America during the Revolutionary War? The statues at each corner of the park recognize key figures who supported the American fight for independence. General Lafayette, French, above, General Kosciuszko, Polish, General Rochambeau, French, and General von Steuben, Prussian. Fourth from the left, a photo and tactile representation of a statue of General William T. Sherman on horseback. In profile, Sherman and the horse face to the left, and his sword hangs to the back, resting against the horse's flank. The statue sits atop a four-level base. On the level just below the horse is a statue of a woman wrapped in strips of cloth. On the flip panel, Which general reportedly stood in the same location of his statue? In 1903, the statue was erected on the spot where Sherman supposedly watched his troops march during the Grand Review at the end of the Civil War in 1865. The President's Park Tactile Statues Display on a slanted display surface in front of the right three-quarters of the changing landscape display case. The White House as an office display introduction. In this area, there are two displays. Facing the tall windows to the security lobby, the White House as an office display is to the left, and the searching for space slanted top display table is in front of you. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area, then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The White House as an office display. Two minutes. This single deep blue panel, eight feet wide and six feet high, bears the words White House as an office in white lettering. The White House serves as the office of both the President and the First Lady. Every President since John Adams, 1797-1801, has overseen the executive branch from within its walls. 
Presidents have made historic decisions in almost every room of the building, from the second-floor offices used by early occupants to the vastly expanded office spaces built during the 20th century. The White House has provided the stage for key diplomatic meetings, unforgettable speeches, and the signing of landmark legislation. While the rooms have changed over time, the historical significance of the events occurring within them remains constant. At the top center, an engraving shows President Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877-81, meeting with his cabinet in what is now the Treaty Room in 1877. Below, surrounded by a dozen men, President Woodrow Wilson, 1913-21, seated at a large polished desk, signs the Army and Navy Bill in the Oval Office in 1918. To the right, a newspaper cartoon depicting a spotlight shining down on the White House on the curved surface of a globe. Below, a quote from President Harry S. Truman, 1945-53. Being a president is like riding a tiger. A man has to keep on riding or be swallowed. Below and to the left, President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, seated at a table with microphones, signs the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty in the Treaty Room in 1963. Standing behind him and to the sides are 17 men, including, at the far right, Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson. To the right, a photo of First Lady Rosalind Carter, 1977-81, with her personal assistant in her East Wing office in 1977. The White House as an Office Display To the left, as you face the security lobby on the north wall, the Searching for Space Display, two and three-quarters minutes. On a deep blue slanted top display table, a navy blue timeline, Eight and one-half feet wide by one and one-half feet deep. The words, searching for space. During the 19th century, most presidents worked on the White House second floor, just down the hall from the first family's residence quarters. By the early 1900s, however, the cramped rooms could no longer accommodate the president and his staff. At the urging of President Theodore Roosevelt, 1901-09, Congress set aside $65,196 to construct a temporary office building in 1902. Enlarged and remodeled several times since then, the West Wing now serves as the bustling headquarters for the Executive Office of the President. Beginning at the left end of the timeline, in the 1800s, presidents worked on the second floor of the residence, near the family living quarters. An engraving shows bearded men seated around a table covered with papers. Next to the right, a sepia-toned photo of large glass greenhouses built out from the west side of the White House. In 1902, they were replaced by the West Wing, shown below in a color-tinted photo. Next, in 1909, the West Wing was expanded to include a new presidential work area, the Oval Office. A photo shows the construction site with the new foundation, wooden wall frames, and temporary construction shacks. The West Wing catches fire on Christmas Eve. Although President Herbert Hoover, 1929-33, considers expanding the office facilities, the looming economic crisis of the Great Depression convinces him to reconstruct the existing space. In a photo, thick black smoke pours from the West Wing roof. Against the wall, three ladders hold firemen. Hoses cover the ground while a bright light illuminates the nighttime scene. 
In the photo below, two men inside cleaning up debris, one with a wheelbarrow. In the background, a charred wall surrounds a fireplace. Next, an aerial view of the West Wing in 1934. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933-45, enlarges the West Wing, adds a second story and basement, and changes the location of the Oval Office to its current spot in the southeast corner. At the right end, a photo of the press room in the West Wing from the back of the room. Six rows of seats face a platform in the background. The photo below it, an indoor swimming pool. President Richard M. Nixon, 1969-74, to converted the pool into the press room in 1970. The Searching for Space Display On a slanted-top table display in front of you as you face the security lobby on the north wall. The West Wing Display Introduction In this area, there are two displays. With your back to the White House as an office display, the West Wing display is to the right, and the Working From Home display is to the left. In front of the large center wall photo, a narrow table holds the tactile West Wing area map and reproduction of the Resolute Desk knee-hold display. The Working From Home display is in front of you when your back is to the West Wing display. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The West Wing Display, 5 minutes. This display is three side-by-side -side panels, each 4 and one half feet wide by 6 feet tall. At the top of the white left panel, a quote from President George Bush, 1989-1993. to I have been concerned about what lies ahead. There is no loneliness, though, because I am backed by a first-rate team of knowledgeable and committed people. No president has been more blessed in this regard. On the left side, the words, a short commute. The presidency is a 24-hours-a-day job. Although the demands have increased over time, all presidents since George Washington have wrestled with the challenges of running the country. When criticized for not disciplining his rambunctious daughter Alice, President Theodore Roosevelt, 1901-09, quipped, I can do one of two things. I can be President of the United States, or I can control Alice. At the top left, a smiling President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, sits behind his Oval Office desk, clapping while his young children, Caroline and John Jr., jump in front of him. At the lower left, Chelsea Clinton, with the family cat Socks, visits her father, President William J. Clinton, 1993-2001, to in the Oval Office on Christmas Eve, 1994. On the right side, the words, Where the President Works. The Oval Office is one of the most famous rooms in modern American history, but not all presidents have used it for their day-to-day -day work. Presidents Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1953-61, and William J. Clinton, 1993-2001, worked in the Oval Office regularly. Presidents Lyndon B. Johnson, 1963-69, and George Bush, 1989-93, preferred more secluded spaces in the Dwight D. Eisenhower Executive Office Building next door. Presidents have also worked in private offices within the residence and have even held meetings in the White House gardens.
On the top right, President George Bush, 1989-93, to and his advisors listened to a military briefing in the treaty room in 1991. Used for cabinet meetings from 1866 to 1902, the treaty room now often serves as the president's office within the family quarters. Below, in a photo taken from the Rose Garden, President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, to is seen through the windows working alone at night in the Oval Office. Below, President Ronald Reagan, 1981-89, to seated on an upholstered chair with his feet resting on an ottoman, works on a draft of his 1985 inaugural address in the private study beside the Oval Office. On the center panel, a four and one-half foot wide by six foot high black and white photo of two staffers for President Lyndon B. Johnson, 1963-69, to preparing for his 1966 State of the Union address. The men write on separate documents surrounded by coffee cups, a pack of cigarettes, and a full ashtray. The President's annual message to Congress is one of the most important events of the White House calendar. At the top right, on top of this photo, is one of President Barack Obama since 2009 in the Oval Office speaking on the phone with President-elect Jacob Zuma of South Africa in 2009. On the right panel, The West Wing is the operational center for the President and his closest staff. First added in 1902 as a temporary office building, the West Wing has expanded several times to meet the growing demands of the presidency. Much of the expanded office space has been carved out of underground basements and corridors. On most days, hundreds of hardworking staffers crowd the West Wing's maze of offices, cubicles, and narrow hallways. On this panel are five photos of presidents and staff members working in West Wing offices. At the top right, clerks answer letters in the West Wing staff room in 1908. To the left, White House staffers gather in the Oval Office to cheer President Harry S. Truman, 1945-53, on his re-election victory in 1948. Below, President Barack Obama, since 2009, meets around a conference table with his national security and intelligence team in the high-tech Situation Room in 2009. Created under President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, the Situation Room serves as the President's information nerve center. Below, a man and a woman work at desks in the West Wing in 2001. Not all White House employees work in the West Wing. In 1939, the executive staff began to expand into what is known today as the Dwight D. Eisenhower Executive Office Building, which now houses much of the president's staff. At the bottom right, President Gerald R. Ford, 1974-77, gives a television address from the White House Cabinet Room in 1975. The West Wing Display behind you when your back is to the working-from-home display. The tactile West Wing area map and reproduction of the Resolute Desk knee-hole panel. Two and one-quarter minutes. If you would like to pause in order to explore the map or the reproduction of the knee-hole panel before starting the description, you may wish to start on the lower left with the map legend. If so, press the square button now. Press it again when you are ready to hear the description. Use the square button to pause and resume the description at any time. The map is at the left, and the knee-hole panel is at the right. At the lower left is the map's legend. 
The lower right, the compass rose, indicates that the top of the map is north. Against an ivory-colored background, dark brown printed text, raised numbers, and raised outlines define the legend and map. The legend is labeled with raised numbers, printed text, and braille. The spaces on the map are identified with raised and braille numbers. In numerical order, the rooms on the legend are 1. Oval Office 2. Office Space 3. Cabinet Room 4. Press Room and 5. Rose Garden At the bottom center of the map, just above the legend, is number 1, the Oval Office. To its left is number 2, a large rectangular office space. To the right of the office space and above the Oval Office is number 3, the Oblong Cabinet Room. Above the cabinet room is a narrow horizontal series of rooms with number four, the press room, at its center. Below the press room and to the right of the cabinet room and oval office, numbers three and one, are rows of dots which represent the columns of the west colonnade. To the right, number five, the rose garden. To the right of the map is the bronze touchable scale reproduction of the knee hole panel of the wooden President's Resolute Desk. Actually, three panels, what is known as the knee-hole panel, has a wide panel at the center and connected narrow panels to its sides. An elaborate border sits atop the vertical panels carved with arch shapes. The center panel bears the presidential seal. An eagle clutches a sheaf of arrows in its left talon and an olive branch in its right. On its breast is a shield with vertical stripes. Behind the outstretched wings, rays radiate in all directions. Across the top is a scroll with the words E Pluribus Unum. Above it, a curving cloud containing 13 stars. The tactile West Wing area map and reproduction of the Resolute Desk knee hole display. On the 1 and 1 half foot by 3 and 1 half foot tabletop, below the center photo of the West Wing display panel. The working from home display, four and three quarters minutes. This glass display case, nine feet wide by eight feet high, has a white background. On the left, the words, working from home. During the 19th century, the president and his staff worked in rooms near the first family living quarters. President Abraham Lincoln, 1861-65, used what is now the Lincoln bedroom. His two secretaries also slept in the White House, and he frequently woke them in the middle of the night to talk. By 1901, 23 staff members crammed into five second-floor rooms. At the top left, three photos. At the left, in one of the first pictures taken inside the White House, this 1846 photo shows President James K. Polk, 1845-49, and his cabinet. Polk created the first salaried federal job of secretary to the president. Before then, presidents personally paid their staff. In the center photo, a woman seated between two men writes at a small table. Alice Sanger joined the White House staff under President Benjamin Harrison, 1889-93. A former stenographer at Harrison's Indianapolis law firm, Sanger was the first female White House office employee. In the right photo, two men sit in an office, one in front of a telegraph machine. Another stands and writes on a large panel on the wall. During the Spanish-American War, President William McKinley, 1897-1901, and his staff utilized a special telegraph office known as the War Room on the second floor. 
At the bottom left, an engraving shows dozens of job seekers lining up outside an open door to see President Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877-81, after his inauguration in 1877. 19th century presidents contended with streams of petitioners who crowded into the upstairs offices and often spilled over into the residents' quarters. At the panel's center, an engraving shows President Grover Cleveland, 1885-89 and 1893-97, sitting across a table from the Postmaster General at midnight in 1897. Although many presidents struggled with the demands of their office, not all kept such long hours. President Ulysses S. Grant, 1869-77, and President Chester A. Arthur, 1881-85, each worked only five or six hours a day. Below, a man with a heavy mustache sits in a chair. George Cortelyou, secretary to President Theodore Roosevelt, 1901-09, implemented office procedures that made the White House more businesslike. Leaving nothing to chance, these rules set strict hours for office staff, required them to clean off their desks every day, and mandated dark suits. These rules even included procedures for disposing of waste paper and riding horseback with the president. In front of the photo, inside the display case, at the center, a blue platform on a low table. At the left, on a small dark gray pedestal, a rectangular heavy glass paperweight, engraved on its top, Executive Mansion. It may have been used in the second-floor presidential office suite in the 1870s. To the right, a dark brown mantel clock on a graduated pedestal, two feet wide at the base and two feet high. The clock, selected by President Ulysses S. Grant, 1869-77, to is made of elaborately carved marble with inlays of malachite, a bright green marbleized stone. At the top, a round white clock face and below the face, the clock curves and widens to contain a round calendar, a vertical thermometer, and a round barometer. At the top right of the panel, a quote from President Chester A. Arthur, 1881-85. to You have no idea how depressing and fatiguing it is to live in the same house where you work. Below, a 1901 photo of the clock on a mantel in the second floor cabinet room. Below, a yellowed 1864 sketch of the second-floor office and cabinet room of President Abraham Lincoln, 1861-65. to The sketch includes several side chairs, one of which sits below on the floor of the display case. The black walnut side chair has an upholstered seat cushion of various shades of green stripes. The back has bowed vertical wooden slats, which merge into the top horizontal rail, which has three evenly spaced, curved cutouts. The legs bow out slightly from the seat before continuing to the floor. The chair was part of a set purchased under President James K. Polk, 1845-49. The Working From Home Display In Front of You When Your Back Is To The West Wing Display The Franklin D. Roosevelt Desk and Excerpts From Presidential Speeches Two Minutes In this seven and one-half foot wide by eight foot tall glass display case is a large brown wooden desk. The background behind the desk is filled with a black and white photo of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933-45, to seated behind this desk. Wearing a light-colored suit, He looks off to his left, his expression somber. On the desk, scattered papers and two microphones. 
The actual brown wooden desk is five feet wide by two and one half feet high by three feet deep. In front of the glass display case, a slanted top display table with a light blue illuminated display. As the country faced the daunting problems of the Great Depression and World War II, President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933-45, reached out to American families through a series of radio broadcasts known as Fireside Chats. His talks, most of which he delivered from this desk, helped reassure Americans that their government was trying to help. To the right, this quote from President Roosevelt's Fireside Chat, May 26, 1942. Let us sit down together again, you and I, to consider our own pressing problems that confront us. At either end of the slanted top display table, you may pick up a sound stick and press a button to hear excerpts from presidential speeches. At both ends, you may choose from the same set of six buttons in three columns of two to activate the recordings. The left set of buttons also has print and braille numbers to the left of each button. In the left column, at the top, Franklin D. Roosevelt in March 1933, and below, Harry S. Truman in May 1945. In the center column, at the top, Dwight D. Eisenhower in January 1959, and below, Lyndon B. Johnson in July 1964. In the right column, at the top, Gerald R. Ford in July 1976, and below, Ronald Reagan in January 1986. Above the buttons, a video monitor displays the captions of the chosen recording. The First Lady's Display Introduction In this area, there are one display and one video. When facing the short and narrow blue wall with the video monitor, the First Lady's display is to the right. In front of the video monitor that continuously shows the White House as office three-minute silent video, are two low white benches. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The First Lady's Display, 6 and 1 quarter minutes. This display has two white panels at left and right each five and one half feet wide by six feet high. Between them, in a narrow glass display case, a place setting of China, glassware, and silverware. Near the top of the left panel, a quote from President Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877 to 81. Mrs. Hayes may have no influence with Congress, but she has great influence with me. In blue letters on the left panel, First Ladies. First ladies help shape the presidency and the nation as campaigners, advocates, and national hostesses. However, some first ladies faced disapproval for being active in political affairs. Critics referred to Abigail Adams, 1797-1801, as Mrs. President, and accused Edith Wilson, 1915-21, of running a petticoat government. Eleanor Roosevelt, 1933-45, helped transform the role of the First Lady by using her position to address a wide range of pressing national issues. Like presidents, many First Ladies now juggle the competing demands of home, work, and public service. While continuing their traditional role as White House hostess, many also became advocates for causes such as volunteerism, literacy, health, and human rights. 
At top left, First Lady Rosalind Carter, 1977-81, stands at an East Room podium in 1978. Behind her are many people, including at the far left, a smiling President Jimmy Carter. As chair of the Presidential Commission on Mental Health, she helped promote the most extensive reforms to mental health legislation in almost 30 years. To the right, a portrait of First Lady Caroline Harrison, 1889-92. She wears a pale lavender and white dress with flared sleeves ending at her elbow. In her hand, an open fan. Mrs. Harrison believed women should pursue activities outside the home. While First Lady, she helped raise money for a Johns Hopkins University Medical School on the condition that it admit women. To the right, a portrait of a dark-haired and rosy-cheeked First Lady Dolly Madison, 1809-17, wearing a white dress and seated in a plush red chair. Dolly Madison made the White House the center of Washington society. First ladies have continued this tradition by entertaining official guests and hosting state dinners and ceremonial events. Below, First Lady Claudia Ladybird Johnson, 1963-69, examines a model of the National Mall area in 1967. Her efforts led to the nationwide 1965 Highway Beautification Act limiting the use of roadside billboards. At the bottom left, First Lady Hillary Clinton, 1993-2001, to 2001, in the Blue Room, discusses the room's restoration in 1994. Mrs. Clinton also helped establish the Save America's Treasures program to preserve the nation's historic and cultural legacy. Between the panels, in a glass display case, a dinner place setting used during the state dinner for Queen Elizabeth II in celebration of the American Bicentennial in July 1976. In the center, a white china plate with a thin gold-colored edge. At the plate's center, the flying eagle shield, and around the rim, individual wildflowers. To the left of the plate, three gilded forks, and to the right, three knives with pearl handles. Three clear stemware glasses are above the knives. To the left, a menu on a white card. Above, a photo of the head table with President Ford giving a tribute to Queen Elizabeth. On the right panel, at top, a quote from First Lady Claudia Ladybird Johnson, 1963-69. The Constitution of the United States does not mention the First Lady. One man elects her only. The statute books assign her no duties. And yet, when she gets the job, a podium is there if she cares to use it. Below, seven photos. At top left, First Lady Barbara Bush, 1989-93, to reads to children in the White House Library. As First Lady, she used her public platform to promote literacy, a cause she continued to support after leaving the White House. Below, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, 1933-45, to sits at a desk, while across from her, her personal secretary and aide writes on a pad. She helped change the public image of the First Lady by actively participating in national affairs through radio addresses, a daily newspaper column, and public lecture tours. To the right, First Lady Betty Ford, 1974-77, speaks about women's issues at her first press conference in 1974. Diagnosed with breast cancer shortly afterward, she openly discussed her illness to raise public awareness of the disease. Below, First Lady Nancy Reagan, 1981-89, to 
stands at a podium outside the South Portico, surrounded by children in green shirts holding green balloons. At a Just Say No rally, the First Lady promotes her crusade for drug education and prevention programs in 1986. At bottom left, First Lady Laura Bush, 2001-09, smiles while holding a white t-shirt with a colorful design. Interested in child development and women's health issues, in 2006, the First Lady meets with representatives of a South African program aimed at helping HIV-positive pregnant women avoid transmitting the disease to their unborn children. To the right, a smiling First Lady Michelle Obama, since 2009, helps local school children learn about healthy eating while planting a vegetable garden on the White House South Lawn in 2009. To tackle the challenge of childhood obesity, she launched her Let's Move campaign. At bottom right, President Woodrow Wilson, 1913-21, to sits at a desk reading a document. To his left stands First Lady Edith Wilson. After President Woodrow Wilson, 1913-21, to suffered a stroke in 1919, the First Lady took over many of the President's routine administrative duties. She refrained from making major decisions or running the executive branch on the President's behalf. The First Lady's Display To the right when facing the blue wall with the video monitor. The White House's office video description. This video, which plays continuously, shows dozens of scenes of presidents at work in the White House from 1861 to 2011. To hear the video description, press the circular button to join the description in progress. When you are ready to leave the video description and return to the exhibit audio menu, press any of the crescent buttons or you may simply move to another display in another location. The White House's Office Video Description, which accompanies the three-minute silent The White House's Office video to the left when facing the First Lady's display. The Stage and Ceremony Display Introduction, one and one-quarter minutes. Near the east end of Baldridge Hall, perpendicular to the host for the nation, and a national stage display cases, in the center is a 10-foot-wide by 8-foot-tall color close-up photo of the South Portico. To the left is the Events and Celebrations display panel. At the left side of this panel, you may go behind these displays to a four-row widescreen theater which shows the White House, reflections from within, every 20 minutes. In the film, presidents, first ladies, and first family members reflect on their experiences in the White House. When facing the events and celebration display panel, behind you, the short and narrow blue wall with the display, What Would You Do?, features reproductions of children's letters to the president. In front, a slanted-top display table provides an opportunity for you to write down three ways you would serve your country if you were the president. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The Events and Celebrations Display, 2 Minutes. This display is divided into two panels, each 5 feet wide by 10 feet high. The left panel is filled with a color photo of the North Portico. On the right panel, Events and Celebrations. 
The White House grounds have become an important site for presidential functions and official events. Parties and social gatherings have been held in the White House gardens since the early 1800s, but presidents did not begin widely using the grounds for executive purposes until the second half of the 20th century. Presidents now often sign important legislation and hold press conferences outside. Welcoming ceremonies for visiting heads of state also take place on the White House lawn. The Rose Garden, located next to the Oval Office, provides a particularly attractive stage for a wide range of official events. At the top, a crowd on the snow covered South Lawn pressing toward the South Portico. Guests gather on the South Lawn for President Franklin D. Roosevelt's 1933 45 fourth inauguration in January 1945. The simple 15 minute ceremony was the only inauguration to take place at the White House. Below, President William J. Clinton, 1993 to 2001, in a 1996 Rose Garden ceremony. Surrounded by former welfare recipients and political leaders, the President signs the Welfare Reform Bill. To the left, President Richard M. Nixon, 1969 to 74, and Turkish Prime Minister Nahat Erjem review a military honor guard on the White House lawn in 1972. Presidents often greet visiting heads of state with ceremonies on the South Lawn. Below, President Ronald Reagan, 1981 to 89, holds a full honors ceremony on the South Lawn in 1981 to welcome home the Americans held hostage for 444 days in Iran. U.S. service members in dress uniforms stand in formation holding flags. At the bottom, in a 2005 Rose Garden ceremony, President and Mrs. George W. Bush, 2001 09, announced the Preserve America Presidential Award winners. The Events and Celebrations Display To the left of the 10 foot wide by 8 foot tall color photo of the South Portico. The What Would You Do display? Two and one half minutes. On this blue wall, 5 feet wide and 8 feet high, large white words at the top. What would you do? Under the title, in light blue lettering, are the phrases defend the nation, create jobs, improve the economy, help the homeless, reduce crime, and promote peace. Interspersed throughout the phrases are reproductions of actual letters written to presidents by school children, handwritten on yellow, pale orange, light green, and white paper. On one, an eight year old girl suggests a new flag design to President Dwight D. Eisenhower. 1953 to 61, after Alaska became the 49th state. She drew an American flag in crayon, with USA replacing the field of stars. She closes, I'm sorry to disturb you, Cheryl. In another, a boy writes to President Gerald R. Ford, 1974 to 77, from his Fairlawn, New Jersey school. I think you are half right and half wrong. From Carteret, New Jersey, a child writes in large block letters in 1949 Dear President Truman, our second grade class sold hot chocolate and cookies for the March of Dimes. We made $20.60. A Cedar Rapids, Iowa, nine year old boy asked President Ronald Reagan, 1981 to 89, to tell Hollywood to post the prices on television commercials because you never know how much money you have to save up. Please tell Mrs. Reagan hello. In 1963, a nine year old boy in Torrance, California, 
writes President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63. The boy's teacher, he writes, has told the class that you want all the children of America to be strong and healthy. After listing a series of healthy exercise habits, he concludes, I am going to do all these things because I know that a strong boy makes a strong man and a strong man makes a strong country. Below the panel, a slanted top display table with what would you do in light blue letters. If you were president, what would you want to accomplish? Write down three ways you would serve your country if you were the president. What legacy would you leave? To the right, a compartment holds small white notepapers and a round compartment holds pencils. Above, a slot to insert completed notes. On the right side of the display above, completed notes are posted. The What Would You Do display. Behind you when you are facing the Events and Celebrations display. The Dear President display. Four minutes. On a single panel, seven and one-half feet wide and six feet high, on a white background, oversized pale gray words, Executive Mansion, and the White House in formal style lettering. Below, in blue cursive writing, Dear President. In the center, arranged horizontally, are reproductions of six letters written to various presidents. Every day, the president receives tens of thousands of letters and emails from people all over the world. First ladies, first kids, and even first pets receive letters, too. On the upper left, a 1958 letter written to President Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1953-61, by Jackie Robinson, the first African-American to play Major League Baseball since the 1880s. I respectfully remind you, sir, that we have been the most patient of all people. Seventeen million Negroes cannot do as you suggest and wait for the hearts of men to change. We want to enjoy now the rights we feel we are entitled to as Americans. I respectfully suggest that you unwittingly crush the spirit of freedom in Negroes by constantly urging forbearance and give hope to pro-segregation leaders. Robinson concluded by praising Eisenhower for acting decisively in the Little Rock, Arkansas school integration crisis the previous fall and urged a, quote, unequivocal statement, end quote, to back up such actions. Next to the right, an 1864 letter from a Maryland enslaved African American to President Abraham Lincoln, 1861-65. to Annie Davis asks Lincoln to respond as quickly as possible. It is my desire to be free, to go to see my people on the eastern shore. My mistress won't let me. You will please let me know if we are free and what I can do. I write to you for advice. The 1863 Emancipation Proclamation did not apply to Maryland, a border state. Although Maryland would soon outlaw slavery in a new state constitution, it would not be abolished throughout the United States until the ratification of the 13th Amendment in December 1865. Next, a 1975 letter written by a Louisiana woman praising First Lady Betty Ford, 1974-77, to for speaking out on television on controversial issues, including breast cancer. It was one of the 35,000 letters and telegrams sent on the occasion. She writes, By bringing taboo subjects out in the open, you may promote understanding and willingness to face problems that were previously unmentionable. 
As the first lady, what you do can greatly influence women. To the right, in a 1973 letter to President Richard M. Nixon, 1969 to 74, an eight-year-old boy gave the president advice. Dear President Nixon, I heard you were sick with pneumonia. I just got out of the hospital yesterday with pneumonia, and I hope you did not catch it from me. Now you be a good boy and eat your vegetables like I had to. If you take your medicine and your shots, you'll be out in eight days like I was. Love, John W. James III, eight years old. Next, a blue telegram dated February 24, 1942, sent to President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933-45, to and signed by J.B. Manuel of Bridgeport, Connecticut. Just heard your speech. It cheered me up. Just received notice today that my son was killed in service of the United States at Pearl Harbor, December 7th. Last, a brief letter to a constituent signed by Evelyn Lincoln, personal secretary to President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, informing him that Kennedy's favorite song is Greensleeves, an Old English composition. Below it left, in 1939, employees worked to sort piles of letters sent in response to a campaign against infantile paralysis waged by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933-45. The History Happens Here Display Introduction In this three-sided alcove, there are three displays. At the left is the History Happens Here display case. In the center is a low wooden reproduction of the end of an early cabinet room table. And at the right is the daily schedule display. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. The History Happens Here display. Three and three quarters minutes. In this five foot wide by eight foot tall glass display case, against a white background in blue letters, history happens here. People make history every day at the White House. Many of the country's most significant events happen within the White House walls. At the height of the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln, 1861 65, signed the Emancipation Proclamation in his second floor office. Within a few months of becoming president, President Harry S. Truman, 1945-53, discussed plans for invading Japan in the cabinet room. President Ronald Reagan, 1981-89, consoled the nation from the Oval Office after the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster in 1986. Every day, the president and his staff keep busy working on national programs, attending cabinet meetings, developing legislation, and preparing remarks for the press. At top left, a 1917 cartoon of President Woodrow Wilson, 1913-21, to seated at a desk writing on a document with a large quill pen. In his left hand, a large paper with the words, American ships sunk without warning, American lives lost. He's preparing to call an extra session of Congress to decide whether the United States would enter World War I. On April 6, 1917, Congress declared war against Germany. To the right, a painting of a seated President Lincoln surrounded by seven men. On July 22, 1862, President Lincoln met with his cabinet in what is now the Lincoln Bedroom to discuss the Emancipation Proclamation, which would free most slaves in states that had seceded from the Union. 
Below, at center, the official portrait of a seated President John Tyler, 1841-45. In his hand, a document with the large word, Texas. Just days before he left office, Congress passed a joint resolution annexing Texas to the United States, which Tyler considered his most significant accomplishment. Below to the left, President Harry S. Truman, speaking to a large gathering of reporters on August 14, 1945, announces the surrender of Japan, marking the end of World War II. Spread around the panel's background are reproductions of historic documents that originated in the White House. An 1823 message to Congress by President James Monroe, 1817-25, laying out the Monroe Doctrine, which warned European nations not to interfere in the Western Hemisphere. President Abraham Lincoln's 1861-65 Emancipation Proclamation, and a 1917 Congressional Resolution prepared by President Woodrow Wilson, 1913-21, preparatory to the declaration of war against Germany in World War I. On the right, a slightly raised blue platform holding an early 20th century black typewriter with round white keys. President Woodrow Wilson, 1913-21, used this Hammond multiplex typewriter when he toured the country in 1919 to gather support for the League of Nations. To its left, a slender, 10-inch long silver-colored letter opener with a mother-of-pearl handle. It was used by both Presidents William McKinley 1897 to 1901, and Theodore Roosevelt, 1901 to 09. Above it, a slender white cylinder, four inches long, suspended on a black rod. It is gray at one end, and at the other end, it widens into a round disc containing a seal. On it, the words, Seal of the President of the United States, surround an eagle and stars. President Abraham Lincoln, 1861 to 65, Use this seal on official correspondence. The History Happens Here display case. At the left of this three-sided alcove, the cabinet room table reproduction, three and one quarter minutes. If you would like to pause in order to explore the table before starting the description, press the square button now. Press it again when you are ready to hear the description. You may also use the square button to pause and resume the description at any time. This reproduction represents one end of the dark brown cabinet table. It is six feet wide, one and one-half feet deep, and its top is two and one-half feet above the floor. Inset into its top is an acrylic-covered display of photos and text, which are described later in this segment. Just under the tabletop is the apron with a locking drawer one of eight around the edge of the table. The trestle-style table sits on a pair of heavy legs at this end, which splay toward what would be the long sides of the actual table. Each leg rests on a carved claw foot, which sits on a small octagonal riser. Between the legs is a thick carved post. At the top left of the tabletop display, a photo of the whole table shows four of these posts. Evenly spaced along the table's center, these extend from the underside of the tabletop. They connect to a carved cylindrical brace just above the floor that runs the length of the table. At either end of the table, the end posts sit between the splayed legs. In the White House, even pieces of furniture have stories. 
President Ulysses S. Grant, 1869-77, purchased this walnut conference table for the second-floor cabinet room in 1869. Since then, many of America's most important treaties and international agreements have been signed by presidents sitting at this table. The cabinet continued to use the table for meetings until 1902. On the tabletop display, just left of center, is a photo of ten men, including President McKinley, standing around two men seated at the cabinet table. President William McKinley, 1897-1901, watches Secretary of State William R. Day and French Ambassador Jules Cambon, representing Spain, sign a peace agreement to end the Spanish-American War in 1898. Right of center, a photo shows President Coolidge seated at the table, surrounded by two dozen standing and seated men. President Calvin Coolidge, 1923-29, signs the Kellogg-Briand Peace Pact in the East Room in 1929. This international peace proposal committed 15 nations to outlawing aggression and war in settling disputes. Next to the right, standing outside the White House, with flags of the United States, Egypt, and Israel in the background. President Jimmy Carter, 1977-81, shakes hands with Egyptian President Anwar al-Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin, after the historic signing of the Egyptian-Israeli Peace Treaty on the North Lawn in 1979. In the last photo at the right, Soviet General Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev and President Ronald Reagan, 1981-89, are seated at a table. With pens in their hands, they sign book-like documents. They sign the Intermediate Range Nuclear Force Treaty in the East Room in 1987. The treaty eliminated more than 2,500 nuclear weapons. The Cabinet Room Table Reproduction At the center of this three-sided alcove, the daily schedule display, three and one-half minutes. This display has a five-foot-wide by eight-foot-tall glass display case and in front, a slanted-top display table. At the top of the panel, A quote from President Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1953-61. No easy matter will ever come to you. If they're easy, they will be settled at a lower level. At the left, President Ronald Reagan, 1981-89, and British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher confer on nuclear arms reduction and Middle East peace prospects outside the Oval Office in 1987. To the right, President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, to meets with advisors in the cabinet room during the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962. The White House became the setting for intense diplomatic negotiations as the United States and the Soviet Union were poised on the brink of nuclear war. To the right, President William H. Taft, 1909-13, with many men standing behind him, signs a proclamation in the Oval Office making Arizona the 48th state in 1912. Below, a grim-faced President Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1953-61, to makes a televised speech to the nation from the Oval Office in 1957 following his ordering federal troops to Little Rock, Arkansas, to enforce school desegregation. Below, a smiling President Richard M. Nixon, 1969-74, to and National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger, discuss international relations with Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir in the Oval Office in 1973. 
At the left, President Lyndon B. Johnson, 1963 to 69, meets with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and other civil rights leaders in the Oval Office to discuss his landmark civil rights legislation in 1964. Six months later, he signed the Civil Rights Bill into law. In front of the case, on a slanted top display table, at the left, under the title "The Daily Schedule." The president has a busy schedule. Finding time for staff briefings, photo opportunities, meetings, official visits, working lunches, and diplomatic events requires careful planning. And the agenda can change at any moment if the president has to respond to a crisis. Keeping the president's schedule and coordinating competing demands are among the most important responsibilities of the White House staff. To the right, a flipbook with twenty-one brown pages, each displaying schedules, diary entries, and appointments. They include the nineteen forty-one lighting of the National Christmas Tree by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, nineteen thirty-three to forty-five. And British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, President Dwight D. Eisenhower's 1953 to 61 speech on school desegregation in September 1957, and President George Bush's 1989 to 93 meeting with advisers on the Persian Gulf War on February 24, 1991. Although their schedules are typically not as detailed as the president's. First ladies have also kept records of their appointments, meetings, travel, and other events. First Lady Claudia Lady Bird Johnson, 1963 to 69, kept a careful record of her daily activities, which she later published in her book, A White House Diary. Other First Lady entries include Betty Ford's 1974 to 77 schedule for July 1976, which included a state dinner for Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom. And First Lady Rosalind Carter's 1977 to 81 entry for her daughter Amy's violin lesson, and later a state dinner for President Nicolae Ceausescu of Romania. The daily schedule display. To the right in this three-sided alcove, the Voice of Democracy display introduction. In this three-sided alcove, there are three displays. At the left is the public office display. In the center, on a slanted top display table, is the Voice of Democracy display, and at the right is the White House press corps display. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through a list of options in this area. Then press the circular button to make a selection. You may stop listening to a description at any time by using the crescent buttons to choose another selection. A public office display, three and one quarter minutes. On this five foot wide by six foot tall panel, against a white background in blue letters, a public office. The White House may be the president's office, but it belongs to the American people. Keeping the public informed about presidential decisions is a cornerstone of American democracy. But the president also needs to listen to what people are saying. Throughout much of the 19th century, visitors could simply walk into the White House and ask to meet with the president. Security concerns have since ended such easy access, but the public can still contact the White House through telephone calls, letters, and emails. They can also add their voices to public protests and demonstrations. At the top, an engraving of dozens of men gathering as a rider on a dark horse gallops past them through a partially opened White House gate. 
Reporters linger outside the White House gates as they wait for news about the condition of President James A. Garfield, 1881, after he was shot on July 2, 1881. Garfield died from his wounds two months later. In the photo to its left, men in suits crowd around a table piled high with telegrams. Cabinet members review telegrams in the Oval Office in 1969. To the right, beside a bathroom sink, a man reads a document. In the foreground, a machine holds a typewritten page. By 1957, the White House press areas had become so crowded that Press Secretary James Haggerty had to set up teletype machines in the bathroom. Below, an overhead view of President Gerald R. Ford, 1974-77, to in the Rose Garden in 1974, giving a press conference before a large crowd of reporters, photographers, and camera operators. By holding press conferences every month, Ford sought to improve relations with the media and the public after the Watergate scandal that led to the resignation of President Richard M. Nixon, 1969-74. On the bottom left and center, a 1943 series of 11 black-and-white and five color illustrations under the title, So You Want to See the President. The work by famed American illustrator Norman Rockwell shows a variety of visitors waiting to see President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933-45. to At the top and bottom of the illustration, black and white drawings include people huddling, a man next to a coat rack, reporters ducking in and out of telephone booths, a military officer being photographed, and a man sitting on the edge of a long table. In the center are the color illustrations of people sitting on either a red chair or a red sofa. They include men talking, a serviceman wearing kilts and a beret, and a woman in a white military uniform. At the bottom right of the panel, a crowd outside the West Wing entrance greets President Herbert Hoover, 1929-33, on March 5, 1929, the day after his inauguration. A public office display at the left of this three-sided alcove. The Voice of Democracy display, two and one-quarter minutes. On the slanted top display table, a blue panel with white lettering, five and one-half feet wide by one and one-half feet deep. At the left, from paper and quill pens to the latest computers, the White House has adapted to changes in communications technology. Early presidents had to rely on letters, personal reports, or newspaper accounts to communicate with the country. News traveled more quickly after President Andrew Johnson, 1865-69, added a White House telegraph room in 1866. 20th century presidents adopted mass media radio and television to reach a wider audience. The White House joined the Internet Revolution in 1994 with the launch of its first website under President William J. Clinton, 1993-2001. To the right, the left photo shows a smiling Calvin Coolidge, 1923-29, standing outdoors after his first press conference in 1923. To either side, reporters raise their round straw hats to him. Coolidge also began regular radio addresses in the 1920s. To the right, President Warren G. Harding, 1921-23, makes a voice recording in 1922. He stands before the wide end of a long, narrow funnel attached to a black machine. Below, a seated President William H. Taft, 1909-13, holds the mouthpiece of a candlestick telephone in front of him and the earpiece to his ear in 1909. 
President Rutherford B. Hayes, 1877-81, had installed the White House's first telephone in 1879, but could only call a handful of people. His telephone number was simply one. In the next photo, to the right, President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63, sits at his Oval Office desk. In front of him, reporters and photographers crowd toward the desk. President Kennedy addresses the nation in a televised Oval Office speech during the Cuban Missile Crisis in October 1962. His predecessor, President Dwight D. Eisenhower, 1953-61, first began televised broadcasts from the White House. To the right, President Barack Obama, since 2009, checks his cell phone on the West Colonnade outside the Oval Office. President Jimmy Carter, 1977-81, installed the first computer, and President George Bush, 1989-93, sent the first email in 1992. The Voice of Democracy Display At the center of this three-sided alcove the White House press corps display, two and three quarters minutes. In this five-foot-wide by eight-foot-tall glass display case, a white panel, a table with a telegraph machine, and theater-style chairs. At the top, a quote from President John F. Kennedy, 1961-63. Even though we never like it, and even though we wish they didn't write it, and even though we disapprove, There isn't any doubt that we could not do the job at all in a free society without a very, very active press. Below, left, the words, the White House Press Corps. President Theodore Roosevelt's 1901-09 temporary office building included a press room in 1902. Since then, reporters have become an ever-expanding presence at the White House. For presidents, the press can be both a necessity and a bother. After President Richard M. Nixon, 1969-74, built a new press room over the White House swimming pool in 1970, observers joked that he could push a button and dump reporters into the pool if they asked too many difficult questions. Above left, a 1942 cartoon of President Franklin D. Roosevelt, 1933-45, sitting at his desk in the Oval Office before a group of reporters paying rapt attention. A grinning Roosevelt leans back with his hands holding the back of his head. President Roosevelt held 1,023 press conferences while in office. Although he enjoyed a good relationship with the press, he set firm rules governing their behavior. To the right, President George W. Bush, 2001-09, stands at a podium in the crowded White House press briefing room, answering questions from the media in 2005. To the right, on August 14, 1945, reporters run across a checkerboard pattern floor to the press room to announce that Japan had surrendered, ending World War II. Standing on the floor of the display case at the left, a blue-top stand holds a brass telegraph key. Around a four-inch-long, open, oval-shaped base are four round knobs and a lever that adjusts the position of the key's striking mechanism. The key extends to the right as a curved arm, ending with a one-inch round black disc parallel to the top of the base. President Abraham Lincoln, 1861-65, often visited the War Department telegraph office. There, operators used this key to acknowledge General Ulysses S. Grant's message that General Robert E. Lee had surrendered on April 9, 1865. To the right... A pair of attached theater-style seats with off-white metal frames and blue upholstery. 
The seats are folded up against the backs of the chairs. They were installed in a press room renovation under President Ronald Reagan, 1981-89. The White House Press Corps Display At the right of this three-sided alcove, you are now returning to the audio menu selections. Press any of the crescent buttons to cycle through the choices and the circular button to listen.